And the bigger they come, the harder they fall. There's a certain species of coach who has a very, very specific and narrow motivation. And that is to absolutely maximize the performance of their athletes. Many coaches behave like parents, and the job of a parent is not to maximize the performance of the child, right? It's to create a happy, functional human being. Salazar is a coach who does not behave like a parent. And people, I think, are constantly confusing him with the parent coach. He's not the parent coach. He's the maximizing coach. That was Michael Joyner and the great Malcolm Gladwell talking about Alberto Salazar. We can never have enough Alberto Salazar on Let's Run.com. And there's a new entertaining documentary called Nike's Big Bet. It is out now. We are joined by the writer, producer, director of that film, Paul Kemp. He's a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member, a 151, I think, 800-meter runner and big-time filmmaker. This is entertaining. you got to watch it. And it's actually available for free on Peacock in the U.S., coming out on CBC soon. It's about an hour and a half. And to watch it properly, you got to be properly hydrated. you got to try Drink Element. Go to drinklmnt.com for a free sample pack. Six different flavors sent your way. You pay $5 shipping. I will refund your money if you don't like this stuff. This is how much I like it. It's electrolytes without the junk. It's great stuff. No carbohydrates. No dodgy ingredients, and you're completely in charge. Comes in these little packets you can just pop in your water. So you're totally in control. And no mess, no gunk. It's great. Try it out today. DrinkLMNT.com slash Let's Run. Link in the show notes. And if you're thinking of joining the Supporters Club, you need to do it this week because we'll be recapping the Diamond League final in a Supporters Club-only podcast. And also 100% of the proceeds go to Jonathan Galt this week. Nothing for Rojo, nothing for Gijo. Sign up today. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Here's the pod. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Labor Day is behind us. The NFL season is almost upon us, but this is going to be more track because we have the Diamond League final in Zurich, a two-day affair on Wednesday and Thursday. We will be giving a full preview of that. We are going to be talking about the US 20K champs that were held over the weekend in New Haven, Connecticut. Congratulations to Erica Kemp and Ben True. We'll also talk about... Jordan Assay's performance there, what it means for her future and for her Boston Marathon hopes next month. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to be joined by Paul Kemp. He is the director of Nike's Big Bet. You may be familiar with this. It's a documentary looking into Alberto Salazar, pushing the limits as a coach of the Nike Oregon Project and also Nike's Vaporfly Shoes. Terrific documentary if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Currently streaming on Peacock in the United States, on Sky in the United Kingdom. And on September 17th, it will be airing on CBC in Paul's native Canada. So great interview with Paul. 
This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined by Weldon Johnson. I'm not joined by Robert Johnson. A little bit of a family emergency at home. Nothing too serious, but he's not here today. Weldon, welcome to the show. Good news for everybody. No Rojo this week. Blood pressure can drop. Everyone can just kind of calm down. We're a day early with the podcast. We wanted to get it out early this week because, yes, folks, the Diamond League final is here. It's kind of a problem with the sport. It's as big as it gets, but not as big as it gets. So some stars aren't there, but there's some great matchups. Andre de Grasse going for the double. Jakob Ingerson going for the double. Fred Curley going for the double. Elaine Thompson. We won't mention now who's not there, but we love our Diamond League, John. So we're bringing early to preview that, and you need to join now. Become a Supporters Club member because our bigger podcast this week will be on Friday after the Diamond League final. We're going to break everything down. Sure, we got some more track meets after that. We got Berlin on Sunday. We got Justin Gatlin's final race week after that. But this is the end of Diamond League track this week. Always a side week here at Let's Run.com. Yeah, it's bittersweet because it's the end of the Diamond League season, but it's also the start of the NFL season. We got Cowboys Bucks NFL season open a Thursday night, so that's exciting. But maybe not for ever, not everyone in our audience is a track is a NFL fan. I know everyone who listens is a track and field fan. So let's run dot com slash subscribe if you want the Friday podcast, second bonus podcast. You're a true track and field insider. You got to subscribe, and all the money if you subscribe now goes to Jonathan Galt. So. You got to do it, people. You got to do it. But before we get to the Diamond League, John, we want to talk a little road action. The New Haven 20K was held yesterday. And, John, I went to college in New Haven. New Haven's probably 40 minutes from my house. And I just didn't think about it until afterwards that I could have actually gone up there, watched the road race, see what was going on. But hey, family responsibilities. Nobody works on Labor Day. I, I couldn't go up there. And, I think there's two main pieces of news. You're a good buddy. One of the most popular runners on Let's Run, actually. His podcast was super popular on Let's Run. Former Dartmouth one, Ben True, gets the win in, I think, what was a four-way sprint, essentially. 59-53. On the women's side, Erica Kemp got the win. But... The big news on the women's side, in my opinion, was way back, I think nearly eight minutes behind Erica Kemp in 14th place, Jordan Hussain. Just just four years ago, she won this race, well then. And we were trying to figure out if these stats were actually correct. And she ran 66 minutes to win this race in 2017. Four years later, still only 29 years old, she runs 74 minutes, so eight minutes slower. It's just kind of, I know she's had some injury problems in that time, but it's just, it's strange that level of decline, right? For sure. You know, let's just talk about her right now instead of Ben True first. We'll talk, we'll give Ben True some love in a minute, but yeah, Hase is kind of what we want to talk about here. Yeah. I mean, she's won, like you said, 66 and something on this course before. And that's not even super fast. I mean, Erica Kemp's winning time was 66 20 fine run but whatever i mean she won pretty convincingly by 40 seconds but it's 520 per mile pace so that's a that's a 220 marathon jordan is saying in case you've forgotten is somebody who ran 223 flat in her first marathon ever and then ran ooh, 220 50 something 
2017 Chicago. In her second marathon, she was the future. She was going to maybe break Dina Castor's American record. And it's pretty much, well, it's not fair to say been straight downhill since then. But when we look at the results, if it's not a straight decline since then, it's declined tremendously. And now you got to worry, is she done? Yeah, I mean, one of the mantras on Let's Run is talent never goes away. And it's kind of interesting. Jordan Nassay has had a very interesting career because she was a high school phenom. She won Foot Locker Finals as a freshman in high school. Then she got beat as a sophomore and junior. And then she comes back and wins again as a senior. And she gets to college. You know, she's first few years, she, she doesn't win you know, right away, we kind of think she's going to be dominating. Then she gets the double victory at NCAA indoors in 2011. And that was, that was actually as a sophomore. So I guess it's not really fair to say she wasn't winning quite away. She wins that. She never won NCAA cross, but she was close. So, you know, she had a great college, a good college career. But then senior year, she didn't even qualify for the NCAA meet on the track outdoors. But then she bounces back and makes the world championship team at 10K. She tries to make it as a track runner of her first few years as a pro with the Nike Oregon project after that world's team though, it's, it's not going super great. She kind of realizes, all right, I'm built for the marathon. And then we're like, okay, she takes up the marathon. She was 25 years old in 2017 when she debuts. And we think, okay, we're going to get 10 years. She found, you know, she has found her event and she had those two great marathons. Like you said, in 2017, 2018, I think she was supposed to run Boston, Chicago again. I remember she withdrew from Boston on the eve of the race because of, uh, I think, a stress reaction, a stress fracture. 2018 Chicago, she dropped, she withdraws from that as well. Then you're like, has she been pushing her body too hard? This is a woman who re- she does really push hard in training. 2019, she responds. She gets third in Boston. We think, okay, things are going the right direction again. She says she's going to attack the American record in Chicago that fall. But ever since that Boston Marathon, she really hasn't done anything. You know, she was 26 at the trials. And I thought she was going to make the team kind of based on how training was going, but her body just seemed like it, you know, wasn't responding. She wasn't ready. I think she was still kind of injured. I want to know how much is it is just injury related that she pushed her body too hard and how much is it other problems? She's also sort of bounced around. Salazar was banned. She was quite close to him. Then she went to Paula Radcliffe. Now it looks like she's been training with Pete Julian in Colorado I don't know. I mean, I think the talent's still there, but she's back to racing and she's nowhere close to her former self. So you kind of want to know, you kind of want to know what's going on. Yeah. For the record, she's joining Pete Julian's group, the yet to be announced group, but on Instagram, she linked to the Pete Julian video and said, I'm excited to be joining this soon to be group to be a part of it. So a couple of things, Pete's no idiot. I don't think you would trot her out here if you thought this is the performance she would get. I mean, she pretty much ran 559 pace. That's 236, 237 marathon pace. There's some interesting threads. Some people, some watch runners were racing this race around her. And from hearing the one guy, he made it sound like she was running around 530 pace sort of near the end. So I don't know if she got slower and then picked it up or what the deal was. I don't think this performance maybe is a good barometer of maybe where her fitness is, but her performances last year, you know, 
over 230 at the trials, over 230 in the marathon in Valencia. Why would we expect her to run under 230 in the marathon this year? Why, why go run Boston if you're going to do that? I just don't see what you're doing. Or, you know, people love to speculate about people's health and that sort of stuff. But health, body weight, all those things are very important. I don't know what's going on, but like she's such a shell of former herself. I don't see the point of racing if this is going to be the performance you, you get. But at the same time, there's some obviously very smart people who have been very successful coaches overseeing her and they're letting her race right now. I, I, I just don't know. I, you can't say she gets nervous and chokes. So almost anyone else in her predicament, I would say is done. But as you pointed out, John, she had this phenomenal high school career, sort of was great in college, then not that great. Then she's naturally made to run the marathon. So if anyone can sort of turn it around, I think it is her, but I'm worried. Yeah, I'm I'm worried too. She's bounced back from some low points in her career though. So I do think she's, I'm not totally writing her off. I do think Boston, I'd be shocked if she runs well in Boston. Just, I mean, she's getting beat by, you look at the women who finished well in front of her today. I mean, Catherine Ergens, Lexi Thompson, Dakota Lindworm. I I haven't even heard of those women. And they were minutes ahead of Jordan Hesay. Um The interesting thing, talking about like, should she race? I mean, I remember speaking, I was texting with Paula Radcliffe before Jordan ran Valencia last year. And I was sort of wondering like, why do this race? Because they were, she basically admitted, you know, she wasn't in the tip top shape. But she thought, like, mentally it would be good to just get a race, a finish under her belt, even though it was only 2.33. So maybe that was just mentally just, like, for Jordan to say, hey, I am, my body is healthy again. I can't finish a race. But now we're close to a year later. She hasn't really improved that fitness much from what we can see. Yeah, you got to wonder, does she run – like, does she run Boston? Because if she does and she just gets her brains beaten in, you know, that's probably not going to be great for her mental health. I don't know. I, I don't want to speculate too much. I'd be very interested to talk to her and just hear what's going on and what she thinks about what's been going on in her career the last few years. She would be a good one to talk to because it was going just so well for her. And now it's not. But also just the level of the drop off. I mean, 10 minutes in a marathon is an astounding performance. Like, imagine if Galen Rupp starts running two 18 marathons and it's still going out there and racing. You'd be like, what are you doing? Like, what's the point? Boston's what? I don't know the dates anymore. It's like a month. A month away. A month away. Yeah. I'm not expecting anything there from her. Oh, well, actually, did you hear well then? Speaking of full marathons, Japan running news. I just saw an article from Je- Brett, Brett Lana. Looks like the Tokyo Marathon is going to be canceled because it was scheduled for October 17th. It sounds like the government of Tokyo is going to be extending the state of emergency. And if that's the case, they said they would not be holding the marathon if it was, you know, the state of emergency had been extended. So Tokyo, they ran their race last year, remember? They were the only major marathon. Them in London were the only two majors in 2020, but it looks like the Tokyo 2020 marathon, even though they pushed it back from March to October, it's still going to be canceled. And some let's run are saying, oh, first of the fall majors to be canceled. I, I honestly don't think the other ones will be canceled. 
the mentality in the United States and the UK for sure is very different than in Japan. They're in sort of peak COVID panic mode. We were there last year. The UK is, London's planning on having its biggest London marathon ever. And I think that'll probably happen. And we saw college football games this weekend, packed, no fans. Outdoor transmission is just generally very low. I think we're going to have big marathons. New York, I don't know, John. You know Boston mentality more than me. New York's a little bit later. They're a little more stringent with the COVID. I still think it's going to go off. New York had already called for a little reduced field compared to their normal full capacity. I expect that to happen. I don't think any of these other marathons are in jeopardy. I agree with you. I think the one I might be worried about is Berlin, but they are what three weeks away now, less than three weeks. And they still seem like they're moving ahead pretty well. You know, they've announced their full fields. So I think that's probably going to happen. I think all the American ones will happen. I mean, Boston is just, they've come out with their requirements They you need to get, to get, pick up your bib. You need to either show proof of vaccinate vaccination or a negative COVID test. And I think with all these people attending, you know, sporting events like football games and stuff, college football is back in the United States, having 20,000 people for a road race. I don't think that's going to be, it's obviously there's a lot of logistical hurdles to clear, but I think the BAA can stage a race like that and put it on. So, and the same with, you know, New York Roadrunners and Chicago Marathon. So I, Berlin is the only one I would be kind of surprised, you know, think there's a chance of cancellation. I expect all the other ones to happen. Let's return to this New Haven road race just because we said we would talk about the winners. So Ben True, I think this is a good sign for him. He's making his marathon debut in New York at the end of the, of the full marathon season. And we know he's a pretty, you know, he's a strong runner. I look at the guys in this field. I'm He beat Abia. B.S. Mbasa was second, one second behind, 59-54. Then Nico Montanez, then Leonard Correa. Leonard Correa is a 207 guy. So... I think that's a pretty solid effort from Ben True. I, I already knew his range extended to the half marathon, though, because he has won the New York City half. Like, the question is, can he go all the way up to the marathon? And I guess that still remains to be seen, but this is a good sign heading towards New York two months out. Yeah, the fact he won the race is a good thing, but 59-53, it just doesn't mean that much to me. You know, it, I was looking at some like equivalency things. It's probably like a 13, 20 something 5K. So the fact he wins, it's great, but I don't know. Um, Nico Montañez, he's a 161 minute half marathon guy, but are people talking about his marathon? What are they going to do? N- not necessarily, you know, no. Or if they are, it's not like front and center. So, the things going for Ben are he's very tough. I think the New York course is good for him to make his debut, but I'm not sure what I'm expecting there. Yeah, I wouldn't be sh- I wouldn't be shocked if he runs, you know, two twelve. I also wouldn't be shocked if he just the wheels come off and he's like, "This is too far for me." But I, I, I'm expecting probably uh, if I put an over under of like two thirteen for Ben True in New York, where would you where would you take over or under? It's funny because when when you said I wouldn't be shocked if you ran two twelve, but I'm like, you may run two twelve. I'm like, what does that do for you in New York? Well, it depends. It could be like fifth place. It kind of depends on how the race goes. I'm gonna go under. 
but or but does Ben decide, hey, these guys are running two hundred nine. I'm gonna go with it. Then I'm going way over. So depends on sort of one how how you go about the race, because I've said this for a long time. I don't judge marathons necessarily by your finishing place or time. You know, in most sports, that's how you do judge things. But you know, not all two twelves are the same. Not all two twenties are the same. You can get there very different ways. Now, this is where I might get into some trouble. You know, not all fifth places in the New York City Marathon are the same either, right? Like, if you're never in contention to get fifth, to me, it's not as impressive as if you battle for the lead and fade a bit and get fifth. Well, yeah, it depends on the field. In, in the day, your fifth New York City Marathon. Well, yeah, sometimes. But, like, I remember Abdi, Abdurrahman got third in 2016. I was like, okay, that's great. He got third in the New York City Marathon. But then you look at the people he beat. I don't mean to just crap on Abdi because the women's field wasn't that strong either that year. But sometimes like fifth in a loaded year is way more impressive than fifth when the field is like, you know, this is the sixth major marathon of the fall. Some of these fields are pretty weak this, you know, in the majors. So yeah, I think all of that requires some context. Uh, Yeah. Women's side, Erica Kemp in New Haven gets the win. Like you said, a dominant run for her, 106.20. And she won by 39 seconds. She was only 15th at the Olympic trials in the 5K earlier this summer. So nice to see her bounce back there. This also, according to Tillis Tapaja, this was the longest race she's ever run. She's She'd never run before 15K before this year. And she was uh, fifth at the 15K champs earlier this year. So good run for her. The one thing I do wonder about this though, like these fields, they're, they're okay. I weren't really like... I wasn't really getting jazzed like, oh my God, look at these showdowns, these 20K fields, especially on the women's side. Like at least Ben True and Lena Kerr are kind of like brand names. Um, I don't know if I would say anyone in this women's field was a brand name apart from Jose, who we already discussed. And part of that I do wonder is like just the the number of, of USATF championship events we have in these distances. We have over the next few months, we had the US 20K champs. Then next weekend, the 10 mile champs. And then in October, we have the 25K champs. And in December, we have the half marathon champs. And I don't know, does USATF get like money from branding these stuff? I, I just don't like, shouldn't we just have one distance? Well, that's like four races, essentially crowning a national championship all for the same event. It just seems like such a, a, a net unnecessarily unnecessary overlap. I see what you're saying, but... Uh, I'm fine with races doing this. There's not a ton of money in these things. And I think somebody wants to step up. It's cool for them to call themselves a national championship, throw some money at us runners. I'm all for it. Uh, It's probably a little more compacted this, this fall with some of the spring races being moved, but it's been like this for so long. It's like USATF's got plenty of other problems. This isn't a big one for me. No, um, I, I agree. I guess if if you, sp- I mean, if they're spending, if they're throwing in prize money to bump up these races, I think it's great. Like that, that adds a little bit more, makes people more likely to go out to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and run a twenty-five k race if there's a U.S. title attached to it, and you get points as being part of the U.S. running circuit. So maybe I've overthought it. I just think it's like, I, I just think it's a little like most other sports wouldn't proclaim like a. Yeah, seventy-five meter world champion, or then a hundred meter world champion, one hundred and twenty-five meter world champion. It just seems like also kind of the same thing. But I get where you, I get where you're coming from. 
Okay, John, I think we need to turn to the Zurich Diamond League final. But before we do that, I know COVID talk you don't like, but we have to give a shout-out, I think, to the Japanese Prime Minister, Yoshihide Suga. Did you see the news this weekend, John? No. The guy announced he's going to be stepping down. Now, without this guy, there would have been no Olympics. But the people in Japan are very upset with how he handled COVID. And he's doing the honorable, honorable Japanese thing and stepping down. He's not running to be, sort of be the head of whatever his coalition. So when they have the new elections, he's not going to be the prime minister. I just want to say shout out to this guy. Thank you. You were a true leader. Without you, we would not have had the Olympics. We had a very safe Olympics from my perspective. And the world needs more people like you. It may have cost you your job at home. And, but maybe that's part of being a leader. You, you do some things that need to be done, and if they're not popular, you, you resign. I, I don't know. I'm just really glad we had an Olympics this year. I am too, and I appreciate that we were able to get it done. Okay, Zurich, we said we were going to try to keep this brief because we do have a fairly long interview with Paul Kemp. Worthwhile, definitely. We get into a lot of interesting topics. So let's try to zoom through this. First, I mean, we have some good showdowns, but I do want to talk about the format, What's at stake? And then also who's not going to be there? So Diamond League final, we haven't had these for two years. It's not just a one one meet thing. It used to be you'd have half the events in Zurich, half of them in Brussels. Now it's just Zurich. And on Wednesday, it's essentially a street meet. So you've got the men's women's shot put, long jump, women's high jump. I don't know why the men's high jump isn't out there, but I guess maybe they only have one high jump, Matt. I don't know. And then you have the men's women's 5,000 meters. This is kind of the strangest of these events. Because we're not used to seeing that as a street meet, let alone the biggest 5,000 of the year outside the Olympics, the Diamond League final. And those races are going to be held on a 560-meter banked track with three turns running around the Sexel Altenplatz, the town square, which is next to the Zurich Opera House. I've looked at some of the pictures. It's just, this is going to be very weird. It's like a three-lane banked track but it's a Diamond League 5K. Like, are people just going to be trying to run really fast? Is it going to be tactical and really bunched? I I don't know what to expect. Part of me is fascinated by it, and part of me is like, this is a total joke. Why aren't they having the 5K finals in the stadium? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Well done. I mean, are they? there's three turns. Have they checked the turns to make sure that, like, at the proper speeds, people can kind of keep going or they don't have to come to a stop? These are Germans, or not Germans, but, like, you know, Swiss Germans you know, sort of, I just offended a whole country, but you know, they're like the Germans actually screw that. They're the Swiss. The Swiss are even more accurate than the Germans, right? Let's stereotype nations and countries. They've said they figured this out. They said it's banked to ensure runners can keep running fast. I'm kind of whatever. I want to see what it's like. I mean, we're going to find out and pretty much probably a little over 24 hours from now, how this goes. I'm fine with it. Maybe it'll make for some cool pictures on TV, but like Paul Chilimo guest of the podcast last week, you guys should definitely listen to that. You know, he, one reason he's not running is like, look, it doesn't count. If I set a PB, it doesn't count. Meets do a lot of street high jumps. We've yet to see the street 5k on a track. So you can try anything once. Let's see how it goes. Well, one thing I find interesting here, this has been pointing out, pointed out by Matt Fleet and Dan Lilo on Twitter, is how much money this thing costs to construct. 
just erecting a temporary 560 meter three lane bank track in Zurich. That's going to cost. I mean, Matt Fleet threw out one million dollars to build it for one. I'm not sure if it's going to be that much, but I guess it's in the thousands, maybe tens of thousands. Wouldn't that money be better served just going to extra prize money, or you know, paying for you know extra? Well, I guess appearance fees aren't really a big deal in the Zurich Diamond League final, but. I just feel like there's a better use for that money than you're not really get. Are you getting any return on the sport? Are people tuning in to watch this race? Is it going to make the sport more popular in the long run? Run. I think it, a more effective use of that would just be boosting prize money across the board, or you know, adding in an event that's not in there. So I don't know. It seems like a bit of a waste to me. The promise of what these street meets do and how they're going to make track and field popular never seems to deliver. So if you're spending six figures, sounds like maybe multiples of six figures on this thing. I kind of question why you do it. But Zurich is as good as it gets. These people have been at the forefront of professional track and field for decades. This is the one meet people should try to go to every single year. I would say this in pre. So I'm not going to criticize them. I'm going to give them the chance. Let's see what happens here. Okay, let's say good good things about the 5K. One, Jakob Ingebrigtsen's doing the 5K and the 1500. This is what the sport needs. We needed stars competing. We think. We think he's doing it because I did see a, he's listed in the entries. But NRK, the Norwegian broadcaster, said that Ingebrigtsen sent them a text on Monday and said he's only doing the 1500. So I really hope he does the double. It would be... A, a lot to take on but remember he scratched from brussels last week because he said he was too tired following the olympics and now he's suddenly be doing the two diamond league finals in two days like maybe he just decides it's not worth it i'm just going to do the 15 so this is sort of tbd on whether he runs the double john no it's not tbd he sent a text message to the norwegian broadcaster he's not doing it i just presented fake news okay this is terrible well he's listed on the entries normally the entries is the final the be all end all but yeah, you know, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday now when we're recording it. But yeah, it sounds like he's not doing it. I trust NRK. Bummer. We do have Yomi Kajelcha racing. Solomon Borega is in there. Joshua Cheptegei, the Olympic champion, is not. But you got the 10K champ. You got Kajelcha. I feel like I'm missing somebody. I don't have the entry right in front of me. Well, Nicholas Camelli, who just got edged out for the bronze medal in Tokyo, he's in there as well. Well, Chalimo's good friend Nicholas Camelli is in there. You guys need to listen to last week's podcast if you didn't laugh when I said that. Paul talks about why and how he almost came to blows with Camelli in the 2019 Worlds. He talks about, calls Camelli flat out a sore loser. A little rivalry, a little trash talk, I think is good for track and field. Yeah, Paul Chalimo kind of doing that single-handedly right now. Him, well, Shikari in the 100, but Chalimo, you know, he declared war on Bauman Track Club a couple of years ago, and now he's going to war with Nicholas Camelli. So not making a lot of friends, but he does make the sport more entertaining. And Paul's YouTube is out. I've not seen it, but I, I, I saw like a pop-up. It was the weekend, you know? He had talked about starting a YouTube channel, and I just I saw like the thumbnail, my first YouTube video. So that is out. I thought it was interesting also, like Paul, like once let's run the forums to be more positive, yet he calls out Camelli and 
But hey, some criticism criticism is valid if it comes from certain sources, right? Okay, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, the Camelli thing. I think Camelli. We got to hear his side of the story as well. I mean, we're just getting it from Paul at the moment. But let's see what's at stake. Diamond League thirty thousand dollars for the winner in each event. That's actually down from a couple of years ago. It used to be fifty thousand per event. Um, you also get the Diamond Trophy, which is I think one of the cooler trophies in sport. It's a little mini track, and then the di- big diamond on the top, big ass diamond. And you get a buy to the 2022 World Championships. So that's nice to have in your pocket if you win the Diamond League final. So yeah, we got the 5Ks on Wednesday. The women's 5K, it's basically just a rerun of what we saw in Brussels last week. The four-way kick there between Nianzaba, Obiri, Ty of Ethiopia, and Margaret Kipkemboy. And they're all back. Elise Cranny's running. Could be Helen Obiri's last track race ever. She's talked in the press conference today about she's moving up to the roads next year. So that'll be a chance for her to get revenge. I kind of expect Nianzaba to win there, though. And then Thursday is the main event in the stadium, the Let's Run. Great stadium. And that's pretty much every other track event, you know, all the stuff we didn't mention. I do want to say, Weldon, here are the athletes who are not running the Diamond League final. Joshua Cheptegei, Sean A. Miller-Webo, Stephen Gardner, Jasmine Camacho-Quinn, Marcel Jacobs, Athingmo, Sydney McLaughlin. Those are, the, those are the Olympic champions who are not running. There's also no Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, no Ry Benjamin, and no Noah Lyles. That, to me, seems like a fair amount of athletes who are skipping out on it. And I do get that the Olympic year brings extra intensity. You know, you're continuing your season another month. But it is kind of like, I don't know, do we need to fix the Diamond League schedule? Because we, ha- I feel like we've seen all these great matchups. A lot of stars have competed since the Olympics. You know, Noah Lyles was in Eugene and ran really fast. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price ran her PR in Lausanne. I mean, do we just need fewer meets before the Diamond League final? Or is there a way to fix this so we can get some of these stars competing in the in Zurich? I mean, it's a huge problem with the sport, with how it's structured. All sports suffer with this, with individual athletes especially. Like, how do you get the stars to perform when they don't have to? I guess the most athlete-centric people would say, well, sorry, the incentives aren't there. You need to improve the incentives. But maybe, fine, that's the carrot, but maybe you have a little stick. I don't know how you penalize people for not coming, but then they'd say, oh, what, we're like endangered servants, we have to run. But like, that's one thing they're trying to do with the rankings and that sort of stuff is really get the stars to compete. But the system now, I mean, $30,000, it's just it's just not enough for Noah Wiles, apparently. Noah Muhammad isn't here as well. I think the, you know, the biggest ones aren't McLaughlin, Weibo. They haven't competed at all since the Olympics, right? So they just shut it down completely. I mean, Sydney McLaughlin, this is her 400-meter hurdle season. She ran the Music City Track Carnival. She ran the Olympic Trials. And she ran the Olympics. And she set two world records in three of those races. So it's amazing. But also, it's three times all year that we get, like, what are the event? I guess the marathon? Like, she's raced one more. Some people will race the marathon as many times as Sydney McLaughlin ran the 400 hurdles this year. And that to me, like, I don't know. It's kind of, do I, I, I don't know, but I'm, I don't know how I feel because when we do get to see her compete, it's really special. And she delivers a really special performance. 
But I mean, would this meet be improved with the presence of Sadie McLaughlin? Of course it would be. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how you do it. You know, the PGA Tour has requirements. You want to be on the tour, there's certain requirements. You have to do so many meets or you lose your tour card. The problem is you did that with track, they'd be like, okay, I'm going to just go to some random joke meet here. She shows up, breaks the world record. It's still the world record, right? I don't know really how you do the, the stick approach. But it's just one of the major problems with our sport. You can go race the Berlin, Berlin East off me this Sunday instead. Big picture, though, most of the stars are in Zurich. Are you glass half full or glass half empty? I was pretty depressed at first. Then I started looking, and I'm like, well, most of the people are doing it. If Shawnee Miller, Weibo, McLaughlin, they haven't raced at all since the Olympics, so you don't expect them. I think Mo ran the one race and said, I'm done. She's 20 years old. I, I can't blame her. It's just the nature of track and field. There's not a regular season that means enough to every to make everybody do it. Yeah. You know, the 200, John. But we do have stars. We wanted a grass running 100 and 200. Fred Curley's doing the same thing. 100 and 200. Fred Curley, 100, 200. Thank you, Fred Curley. You deserve a shout out. And John, you did have listed on the show prep notes, you know, race of the meet, 200. Curly, Lyles, DeGrasse, and <laughs> a rare time where I had to inform you, John, that it was Josephus Lyles running the 200. Honestly, that was the most deflating experience, Weldon, because I was looking at three. Here's the problem with this meet. And I, uh, this is coming from a very spoiled track fan perspective, but the Olympics were incredible. We saw all these great showdowns. And then we actually had a lot of very good showdowns in the Diamond League meets after the Olympics. Like a lot of those were really exciting. We had some really top tier clashes. And the problem that presents is when you've had them clashing in those Diamond Leagues and you've also had them clashing at the Olympics, we say some of our stars don't race enough, but then the ones who do, they've actually been racing each other all the time. So I feel like I'm looking for like, ooh, where's a showdown where we haven't seen these top athletes compete against each other? Most of these events don't have it. Most of them, we've kind of seen what the pecking order is and we've seen who's racing against each other. And this one, the one I was really excited for, I was like, wow, Lyles went out and kicked ass in the 200 at pre. DeGrasse ran the 100 there at pre. They did race at the Olympics, but I'd really like to see what Noah Lyles, who just ran 19.5, can now do in the 200. I was like, this is a showdown. We only saw it at the Olympics. I want to see if DeGrasse can get revenge on Lyles, if Lyles can get revenge on DeGrasse. And that's the one event of all the ones I listed that we're not actually going to see. So that's kind of a bummer. But look, I'm excited. Faith Kipigon's in the 1500. I want to see if she can get the world record there. Like, do you realize how good her season has been, Weldon? We agree she's the greatest miler of all time. This is what she's done this year. Second in Florence in 353. First in Monaco in 351. First at the Olympics in 353. First at Prefontaine in 353. And now she's running Zurich. Before this year, her PR was 354. And before this year, you could make the case she was one of the best milers in history. She has now run faster than her PR four times this year and won the Olympics. And she ran 356 in the semi at the Olympics. I mean, this is a historically great season. Maybe the greatest season we've ever seen by a female miler by Kipigon. So I think it would be pretty cool if she could challenge the world record and get it in Zurich. But John... I think you're missing a big thing. Sifan Hassan is in this race. 
Are you just like not giving her any chance? I mean, sure, stars going for records is great, but this is a final. Safan Hassan is in this, and I, Safan Hassan is one of the most competitive athletes on the circuit. I think she thinks she can beat Faith Kipiegan. You seem to be sort of dis- totally dismissive of it. Well, the reason I'm dismissive, Weldon, is because the last two times they've raced, it has not been close. Safana Song got destroyed over the last 100 meters in Monaco, and it was destroyed even more convincingly at the Olympics. Granted, she was tired. Maybe. Now, but Hassan looked very good in the mile last week. You know, 414 mile. That's some pretty quick running. I think she probably had, she definitely has a better chance to beat her than she did at the Olympics when she was. You know, she was tired, but I, I don't know. I just kind of feel like we have the evidence at this point that Faith Kipigon's the better Milo. You think they're going to queue up the pace lights and go for the record? I think they might. I mean, that's kind of they, basically what they did in the Hassan race, right? Last week, and Hassan went with it in Brussels and then fell off. I mean, if you're going to use a pacing lights f- for this race, I don't know if they're installed in Zurich. I assume they are. Why wouldn't you say it's the world record? Like either use it and say it's the world record, or just don't use it at all and let them race, duke it out mano a mano. Oh, I would love to see them both in the race. The lights queued up. Let's go for this. I mean, this could be one of the greatest matchups of all time. I agree with you. Kipiegan is definitely the favorite, but Hassan was super tired at the Olympics. Monaco. I don't know. At the time, I'm not sure what excuse I made for Hassan losing because I sort of viewed them almost as equal or maybe Hassan having the leg up. But Kibiegan's taken it to another level this year. But I'm not w- willing to write off Hassan, who's done the most incredible things this year that I've seen a female distance runner ever do. I think she will lose, but I think her being in the race, pushing her, I really hope they go for the record because this could be just legendary and her being in the race. It just makes it more interesting. You need matchups. You need stars, not just people soloing after records. I mean, if she gets a world record, it's great, but most of the time they don't. So it sort of fizzles out, but they're also just two of my favorite runners to watch. Like say, even if they weren't facing any competition, like just getting to see Safan Hassan and Faith Kippy gone run is a treat. So the fact that they're racing against each other obviously makes it a lot better, but that's one of the ones I'm interested in. Two other Americans in here. Actually, three other ones. Helen, Helen Schachtenhofen. Did I say that right, John? Sounds about right. One of Dartmouth's finest in here. She makes it, as does Josette Norris. And, hey, Chanel Price. They let Pacers into the Diamond League Finals. I wonder how that technically is written into the rules, but she is in there. All right, looking at these these events, which event do you think is the most likely we're going to get an American victory in a Diamond League distance event? I have I have my answer. What do you think of all the events in the Diamond League final? Who's most likely to get the win and the bye that comes with it to Worlds? Well, I, we did not discuss this beforehand. I think there's only one possibility. Steeplechase, women's steeplechase. Yeah. Oh, I agree. oh, oh, oh. I thought of a second one. Kate Grace? Yeah, Kate Grace. I think Kate Grace, that's the, that's, I think it's Courtney Frerichs definitely has the best chance. Even though she did get smoked by Nora Gerudo at the pre classic. You know, she was second in that race. She ran 857. She's clearly in great shape. 
Kate Grace, I do think has a chance because there's no a thing, Mo. You know, she didn't have a great race last week in Brussels, but she has won a Diamond League this year. She consistently ran in the 157s before that. I don't think it would be a huge shock. So she's got a possibility. And then everyone else, I mean, Clayton Murphy, if he ran his best race, he could win. But I don't think, you know, he hasn't really done that on the Diamond League this year. Isaiah Harris did win a Diamond League, but it wasn't against, the, you know, you got all the Kenyans in there with Correa and Rotic and, you know, Marco Arop's running well now. And then the 15, 1500, no chance in either of those. Men's steeple, no chance. 5Ks, no chance. So I think it's it's probably Frerichs and then Grace and then, I don't know if it may be, maybe in the 800 men, but I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, I was glad to see Clayton Murphy in here because I think on points, there was some question whether he even make the Diamond League final. So I commend him. We say that people don't race. Clayton has gone out there a lot and keeps towing the line. His best race now looks to be in a bit of the trials. At the Olympics, if you, you know, the final wasn't what he wanted, but it's hard to get the peak right. But he's been out there a lot since the Olympics continued to compete. This is the biggest race left on the calendar. Thank you for being there, Clayton. Yeah, I don't think he has much of a chance. The 800 is pretty much, you know, these guys have been doing it since the Olympics. It's just like an Olympic rematch almost every single time out, except um, A-Rop, is, well, who wasn't in the Olympic final, is probably the favorite because he's won the most diamond leagues since then but that's wide open men's 1500 you gotta say ingerbibson now is the big favorite yes he has to be though i am curious like timothy chariot has essentially he's led on since the olympics he's not 100 percent healthy so i do i'm curious like and we saw his last race i mean very on timothy chariot like when he he faded at the pre-classic and was not really uh, he fin- he was not first or second, which is very odd for him. McSwain's in there as well. You know he'll probably do well, but he's going to get beat by Ingebrigtsen most likely. So I would think Ingebrigtsen's the guy to, to be. We'll be interested to see how healthy Chariot is if he can rebound from that subpar showing at pre. In terms of Chariot being here. I mean, a thirty thousand dollars first prize. I think it's more incentive, more incentive for a Kenyan guy who doesn't get as much in sponsorship deals. But if he's not fit, I, he doesn't have to be here, right? So I, I think hopefully he can regain his form because the pre-race shocked me. He just was like, a, not I've never seen him like that. Just didn't go with it. Wasn't really a factor. Okay, in terms of sprints, I mean, we kind of thought. 200 is still going to be good. Bednarik, DeGrasse, Curley. I mean, that's that's pretty exciting. Women's 100, Elaine Thompson-Hera is running. One last crack of the world record, maybe, if it's favorable conditions. And then uh, men's 400 hurdles. We've got Wolholm. I mean, here's the other thing. Like, there's no Ry Benjamin. This is kind of a bummer. Like, when they do race, it's very special, but they barely ever race each other. They were supposed to race in Monaco. Benjamin didn't make the trip. They raced in the Olympics. It was the greatest race we've ever seen. But now Diamond League final, Benjamin's not making the trip. I don't think he's... He did. He has raced since the Olympics, but he's not running here. So that's kind of a bummer. It's just going to be a solo run for Warholm, essentially. I don't know. Uh, but I'm still excited. I mean, 
uh, any race Carson Warholm's in, I'm going to be excited to watch. So I can't really get too bummed out about it. I feel like I've been a little negative in this podcast and I need to be a little bit more positive. Yeah, to me, the fact that Warholm's here giving it a go, I think more sports, more stars in sport need to have that mentality for the sport to flourish. But the sport is what it is. But he, you know, he bombed in that 400 race he ran. And he could have said, oh, I've had a tremendous season. This is the greatest season ever. I'm going to skip the diamond final. Instead, no, he's here. That's great. The men's 100, I don't know if we've lost some of the star power, but Bermel was running so fast early this year. With him not running well, I don't know. There's really no alpha, maybe, because the Olympics was just so turned on its head with Jacobs winning. But it's pretty strong. We got Baker, Bermel, Curly, and DeGrasse. And John, this Sri Lankan guy, Yupan Abekun Muriyalange. Well, I thought this was like, I was like reading it and had to double check the entry list. I was like, how the hell is there a Sri Lankan in the Diamond League men's 100 meter final? How is this possible? And yeah, his name is, I'm probably going to butcher it, but Yupan Abikun Mudiyan Salon. And 10.15 seasons best, but he was, he ran one diamond league this year. He got fourth in Florence. That's worth five points. He's 14th on the list. So six guys in front of him scratched and he got into the final. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, props to him, 10.15 for a Sri Lankan. That's, that's pretty good actually. But I don't know if it's the star powers diminished. I wouldn't say that the star power is the same. The stars just aren't running as fast. Like there's no Marcel Jacobs. Okay. But Ronnie Baker, Trayvon Bromel, Fred Cully, Andre DeGrasse. Like, if you told me in June all these guys are going to be running the Diamond League final, I'd say that's a hell of a race. They just haven't been running quite as quickly recently, you know, than as those nine sevens and nine eights we saw earlier in the year. Well, the Super Spikes clearly got tired as the season went on. So, who knows? Maybe Super Spikes aren't as big a deal as we were saying they were. We apologize for ever mentioning shoes on this podcast. I'm excited to see DeGrasse and Curly do the double. I think that that'll be, re- especially if one of them can pull it off. Like if the whoever wins the hundred, if it's one of those two guys, I'm going to want them to win the two hundred as well because I think that'd be really awesome if they could win both events. It's great that they're doing the double. It's a three-hour meet, everybody, one to four p.m. on the East Coast. Got to watch it if you can. And we're going to have the Supporters Club show either Thursday night or Friday. That'll be more of a regular podcast. This one's a little bit abbreviated because we've got the great interview with Paul Kemp. John, probably should talk about this in the intro, but like Paul Kemp, he's a huge runner. He was on the Canadian National Championship collegiate team. I think like a 150 and change, 800 guy. So he knows his running. He's made like legit films, like non-running films. And he reached out to us when we were at the Olympic marathon trials and said, do you want to talk to us about this thing? It's some interview. I didn't think much of it. And he put together all these interviews to tell the sort of Nike Alberto Salazar story. There's archival footage of races, Salazar races. I was pumped up after watching it. And, you know, it's entertaining. I hope everyone will agree. Like, Watch this. If you enjoy it, tell your friends about it. Have them watch it. I think non-running people can appreciate th- this story. 
And we've got a few quibbles with Paul and we talk about it. It's great. He's a, he's a Let's Run.com supporters club member, guys. You got to subscribe yourself. Let's Run.com slash subscribe. But anything, John, you want to throw in here to get people to listen to this interview with Paul? Well, I mean, I think you'll, people will appreciate it more if they've seen the documentary on Peacock. And if you have Peacock, it's, you know, if you're a track fan, five bucks a month, you get the Diamond League, you get this documentary. I think it's worth it. But no, I, I think he's an entertaining character and he, sp- he spent a lot of time and resources getting this documentary finished. He finished it in the pandemic, was flying around, had all these quarantine stories and like the restrictions were different in different states. So, but he talked to a lot of good people and he got the footage in this movie, I just think is really terrific. So I know people are sort of Salazar'd out, but this is also, it can be Salazar'd out, but this is not the perspective you're always hearing like, Oh, is he guilty? You know, is he guilty? That sort of thing. Or like what specific stuff they talk about his case, but they also talk about like, you get a different angle on some of this stuff, especially the role Malcolm Gladwell plays in this film is sort of, he's basically a Salazar apologist. And so I find it, it's an interesting take. I think Paul didn't go in there with the idea like, Oh, is he guilty or innocent? He's more like, why, why is Nike funding him? That's the central question. Why is Nike spent millions of dollars backing up Alberto Salazar? And, you know, I think it's what he's produced is really interesting. So I think the conversation was great. It's one of the best interviews we've had on the podcast this year. Yeah. I mean, we just sort of geeked out about track. We were going to talk to Paul for, I don't know, 15, 30 minutes. And we just kept going, found it very interesting. The film was very interesting. And yeah, like, the rights in this thing, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think, like securing footage, that sort of stuff. This stuff isn't cheap. This isn't some like guy like you or me going out there and trying to make some film. Very entertaining. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah. That's, that's the most interesting part to me, Weldon, was the sort of behind the scenes stuff and how this all came together. You know, if you ever have questions about like, oh, how'd you, what goes into making a film or anything like that? He does a good job giving us, you know, peeking up behind the curtain. Yeah, if I'd known it was going to be so popular, I would have, like, not gone out the night before a little bloodshot in this thing. John and I are both in this film. Starring roles, John, starring roles, I'm sure. We, we should get compensated. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on strike and demand that my rights footage gets taken down. Yeah, can, can we join the Screen Actors Guild now, Weldon? Does this count as a credit? And hey, it's fitting that Rojo isn't on this because Rojo is not on the film. All right, here he is, everybody. Paul Kemp. Now we're pleased to be joined by Paul Kemp, the executive producer of Nike's Big Bet, an 80-minute documentary on the Alberto Salazar controversy, suspension, however you want to call it. It's available in 82 countries worldwide coming out in Canada, actually, on the CBC on September 17th. Paul, I watched the show last night, and I got to admit, first of all, I don't read running books. I don't watch running movies. Never. Because, I don't know, this happened about 15 years ago when I was coaching and collegiately and doing Let's Run. Just running was too much. People would say, I've got this great book I've written. Will you review it? I said, no, I don't do it. It's too much. I'm tired of running. But I knew you were going to be on the podcast, so... Weldon had watched it earlier this week and said, this is actually really good. I watched your film last night. It was amazing. I was blown away. Uh, I I haven't had that much fun watching television or a movie, whatever you want to call it, in a long damn time. I 
thought it was exceptional. So I don't know, that's how I want to start the podcast. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. You did a, a, a wonderful job. And if you're listening to this right now and haven't watched it, you need to find it. We'll have a link on Let's Run where you can find it. Watch it on the CBC if you're a Canadian on September 17th. But congratulations. It was it was a great, great documentary. Thanks. It's uh, and for the American guys, like I'm Canadian, but uh, for the Canadian, for Americans, it's it's streaming on Peacock. It's been streaming since just before the Olympics, and it should be there for as long as I think the contract goes for a couple more years. So it's anyone who has Peacock can stream it at any time and, and watch it. So you guys have an 83 minute version, and you're right. It's uh, it's sold in 82 countries, um, but it's. Um, it's actually been different. It's been different cuts in different countries. So in the UK, you get the exact same one is it's on sky in the UK and it's playing the same way uh, in Canada. They wanted a 44 minute version. And so I had to do a, like a pretty tight cut down, add narration to, to tighten up the story. And then in Germany and France, they needed, they needed the same thing. They actually had me in this, in the story as the, as the character. So there's, there's five versions floating around uh, all the world right now. <laughs> um in Australia and New Zealand, you can get it on Amazon. So it's uh, it's doing well. Like I'm, I'm surprised it got picked up in so many countries. Uh, actually, it's my best selling film I've ever done, and uh, I appreciate the words because uh, it's I'm getting um, I'm getting tons of great response um, from runners, and then I also you know a few people are taking some swings at at some of the stuff in the film, which we can talk about if you like. But uh, but overall, I think it's uh, it it uh, has been fairly well received and people are enjoying it just as a entertaining watch. And I, I think that's what I, my goal was, was to make something entertaining for track people, but people who don't understand track at all, who could just tune in and go, who is this guy Salazar? Like, who? and, and I think that's the thing we're missing as a sport. We just don't have enough stories being told that translate, um, you know, like these hero and villain stories that can translate between the sport, our sport and the, and the wider public. And so my goal was to deal with that. And that will probably answer some of the questions people have is why didn't you go deeper into this little detail or, or this? Uh, I think you guys would understand most of that, but my view was I can't tell every detail of every story. I want it to make, make it be a tight entertaining story, uh, you know, story arc that people could hang in there. And after 83 minutes, you know, feel great that they watched the movie and that they got their money's worth. Well, that's a great opening there because th that was one of the biggest questions I had. I was like, what is the point of the film? Because I thought it was incredibly well balanced. You show both sides of the story, but I'm like, it doesn't seem to me like he's trying to say he's guilty or he's innocent. You're just presenting both of it. Very entertaining. And I was actually texting an ex runner of mine who was actually coached by one of the people in the story, Bob Williams. And I said, have you watched it? He said, no, I haven't. I said, you've got to watch it. And I'm like, this is the type of thing you could watch with your girlfriend if she's not a runner. I feel like it's it's broad enough that a, a diehard, you know, that a non-runner would enjoy it, but also a diehard would enjoy it. You know, and we can quibble about what you did leave out. I do think you left one or two things out. Namely, actually, Jonathan and Weldon are both in the film. Yours truly, Rojo, nowhere to be seen. So if you make a six version, I think we should dub out at least all of the places where Weldon's in the film, you can put it with me. He never was smiling. Weldon, were you okay that day? What, I actually loved what Weldon said on film. I thought his his quotes were really accurate and, and added a lot of value. And I thought the, the way you had Jonathan on there as well was great. Like Jonathan played the same role in the film that that he does on this podcast, which is provide the facts and the, and, and, and the data. 
Um, so you really got the, the essence of them, but I'm not sure why you used my, my genetic eagle, not myself, but. Well, you were there. Well, okay. Well, first of all, I interviewed, I was at the U S Olympic trials for the marathon. And this is when I started the story. Cause if you recall, Salazar got banned, um, in on October 1st, 2019, I started pitching the show, um, end of November. I got a deal in hand with, um, Germany, who Salazar is actually a fairly big guy over there, believe it or not. People know who he is. It was weird. Like all the journalists knew who he was. Um, maybe because Klosterhoven was running with him. Um, but, uh, and then UK came in board and I knew I had, a, I had just enough cash to start making the film. So I just, I, on a, on my own dime, I went down to the Olympic trials and paid for the crew to come in. And I was sitting outside the Nike, um, like where Nike was giving away all those free alpha fly shoes and Weldon and Jonathan walked in looked like, what the heck's going on here? Nike's bought and brought in a boatload of shoes here. Um, what are you guys filming? And I said, well, yeah, they're filming this stuff. So I asked them if they would go on camera. I think it was the next morning and they agreed. And so I rented an Airbnb down the street and we set up the, uh, the interviews there and, uh, you weren't there. So I would have uh, for sure interviewed you if you were there, but uh, it was, uh, you know, your brother and John were there and ended up, well, then how long did we go? We probably went like almost, I think I interviewed you with for almost 90 minutes and John at least 45 or 50. So um, it was those were quite long interviews actually. Cause I went, I have the transcripts that are like 40 pages long. So I had no idea it was that long because I don't know. I just did this thing. I'm like, Oh, some guy's making a running movie. And then we go to the Airbnb. It's really nice. You had a crew, you're shooting from different shots. And I'm like, okay, maybe this thing's going to be pretty good. And then I sort of forgot about it. I knew it was coming out. And then when I watched it, I just there were so many different angles of things I was talking about. I mean, I had no idea what you were making. And I'm like, wow, this is it tells a good story. There's a lot of different stuff in here. So maybe we did t- talk that long because you weaved the story together very well. I thought it was entertaining. I think Alberto's I mean, have you spoken to anyone at Nike? I think people at Nike Alberto, they they would be pleased with this film. I think he's in a presented in a favorable light or fair light. I don't know what the right word is. He doesn't come across as some terrible villain. I think we like to make things. I don't know. This this is sort of my one of my like nemesis in the sport. We like to make it so black and white where it's really sort of gray. Sure, there's lines you don't cross, but like we're not all good. We're not all evil. That sort of thing. I, I think that's what I was trying to trying to do with the film and that to, to be honest when I started when I was interviewing you guys I I literally didn't know the film was going to be so much about a Salazar I didn't go in with the idea this is a Salazar film I wanted to look at the fine line of sport like the fine line between cheating and um and you know fair play and Salazar was obviously the way into it I didn't realize the more I was going into it, how much I enjoyed his character coming out, um, just the history, his history, all the people talking about like what kind of competitor. I actually didn't know as much about Salazar, his his running days, like from 76 to 84, as, you know, obviously Andy Burfoot's in the film, like Ken Goh's known him for 30 years. These guys all had been around him. And so when I was when I was doing it, I was actually interviewing people about all sides. That's why the interview was so long. I was dealing with the running shoes. I was dealing with 
um, the, the rise of running groups. Like I actually had talked to quite a few people about the Hanson project and how that had ignited the Nike Oregon project and how that was changing sports. So I was really dealing with a whole bunch of those issues um, at, the, at the beginning, but the, then you go into the edit suite and you're like, wow, there's like, this is, this is the story. Like I could start, it started to become clear to me as I was editing it, that, that this is the more interesting story. We've got a hero and a villain that opens up the door to all those other questions. And he, he represents also a corporation, Nike, which espouses his views on it. Like they're almost like the corporate embodiment of his views. And I found that fascinating. And so that's the, the angle I went at. Uh, in the film. And I tried to, yeah, I tried to treat him care, uh, you know, carefully because one, I didn't want to get sued. I wanted to be careful that I wasn't just, you know, if I go on the let's run running boards as an anonymous poster, I can view whatever I want. But if I'm, you know, but when I'm doing a film, I have to follow the rules of journalism. I get these things vetted by um, libel lawyers. Um, I had to let Nike respond. I did speak to Nike several times. Weldon. um, I had numerous calls with them. I thought somebody corporately would speak, but then they just decided, nope, <laughs> we're not speaking on this. Uh, but they did answer a series of questions that I, I wrote to them. And uh, those are actually presented in the film. The ones that are, um, that were necessary. I had to put in uh, as titling and that's the titling that you'll see in the film. Speaking of the let's run uh, message boards for people, not, seeing video of this, you're wearing a 159.40 goat shirt. Paul is a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member, so a true diehard. If you want all the inside information from Let's Run.com, go to Let's Run.com slash subscribe. Well, I, I keep saying you join the Supporters Club and great things happen to you. You either set a 50K world record. What happened last week, John? Somebody, oh, you they win a famous ultra race, and now you make a – a documentary. All, all you got to do is just sign up and something amazing will happen in your life. But spoiler alert here, those of you who haven't seen the film, I mean, that was my favorite part is how you had a story, a theme sort of from start to finish. It was about the founding of Nike, win at all costs. Steve Prefontaine goes for the gold. He doesn't want to get third. You know, he doesn't want to get a medal. He's going for broke. And then you sort of sort of say that after Prefontaine left, there was no one. You sort of say Salazar took that mantle of he's the winner. He's the face of the brand. And we've got to win at all costs. And I just, I love that theme. And I'd never sort of seen that tied together. And then at the end, you sort of tie that into the Vaporfly controversy in the shoes of like, look, Nike's sticking true to the ethos of we don't give an F, we want to win. And I had never really, I'd kind of thought about that in the back of my head, but not sort of that constructively. So I I, I liked how it had a big story. Um, And just hearing you talk about it, I mean, because this is like a factual journalistic story for us but for you you're a filmmaker and you're making this you know people always complain that some of these films aren't totally true to life but this is more of a documentary but it still has a a neat story to it so really well done yeah and i wanted to bring the excitement of track to it like in just the i i recall like i've been on the message boards probably for 20 years just so everyone knows i actually was a runner so like i didn't i don't come i uh this is my first running movie i've I've done over uh i've got about 125 television credits and I've done about 20 movies. Um, and, but I had never taken on a subject like this and I wanted people to understand like what, it, what Salazar meant to the sport when he was on that 
that rise, you know, like from 2007 to 2016, let's say, when all the people are coming in there. I wanted people to feel that, like when Central Woods won, when, um, you know, he had, well, even, even up to Safan Hassan, like she's like this incredible athlete who does the most incredible, you know, sporting event. Well, maybe she did she outdid herself this year, but, but in 2019, that was like a, a one of a kind thing when she won the 15 and the 10 K and I wanted people who didn't understand the sport to see that and, and, and do that. So, you know, we use music and we use still photography and we did all those things to, to, to bring that to life. Um, but I still remember back in like 2001, 2002, when this project started and like people were like, what is this thing? And I, like, I wanted also to trace the history of why did it start? Why did Nike make this bet? And I think I, I, I guess I'm hearing from you. I did the job because I wanted to show show what happened and how, like even Wired magazine went there. I think in 2002, I got all the photos from the Wired magazine in the in the show, like of the of the altitude house that he set up and all. And like he's got all the guys strapped up to the you know the electrodes and all the science and the weirdness of it and i wanted to really play that mad scientist side of them up because i had followed him enough um and i just hoped that that got through so i i hope it did but uh i, I and i everything when i've talked to thinks that that's a fun part of the show is watching that uh, and i don't know if you guys would agree but i enjoyed doing that part yeah at the beginning of the documentary, you said sort of there was two questions like, did he do it? And why is Nike placing such a big bet on, on Salazar and still defending him? To me, the second part, if I had a critique of that, would be, isn't the obvious thing that Salazar and Knight are really good friends and Phil Knight, this is his baby. I mean, this is an Oregon legend. Like, I mean, if, if, we, if we think of Phil Knight as maybe not the super, you know, on a running team, there's kind of a social hierarchy. Phil was a, I don't know how good of a runner was, but he wasn't a star. And then I know Salazar is younger than him, but Salazar is this Oregon God. So maybe feels like the little nerd that's kind of an off Salazar. Salazar has done a lot for the company over the years. Why would he turn his back? To me, it's more of a personal thing. That didn't really ever show up in the film, if that would be one critique that I would have. But um, Bob Williams sp speaks about it at the end of the uh, longer version of the, of the film that you saw. Um, he speaks to it. Uh, I mean, they named the, the building after them, which is since like last week has been taken down. But uh, yeah, like there's a deep, a deep relationship there with Nike. Um, but look, he, when the ProPublica thing came out in 2015, uh, accusing him of all these things, these alleged issues, uh, you know, there was Steve Magnus story. There was, you know, Kara Goucher's well known about this. There's a whole bunch of people that come out against him. Um, he put out this 15, I think it was like he had 15 uh, responses to all the allegations against him. But during that time, Nike could have easily just said, it would be easier for us to, to back away. Like, but they never did. And I found that that fascinating. And so you're right that Nike doubled down on him for a long time. And that it was a bet um, when he was officially, you know, canned from the sport for four years and, late 2019 then they backed away mark parker leaves inexplicably uh, two weeks after they said, oh that had nothing to do with the nike organ project well you know i'll let people make their own decisions on that nike would said it had nothing to do with it um but yeah like there's a deep personal i think that company is very deep and personal with the people that there that have been there mark parker had been there for i think 25 years 
I mean, they still have employees that have been there for 30 years. So there's an, an ethos there that's deep. And Salazar, of course, had been there and they had backed him in 20, 2001 just to, to come up with this idea. And I don't think they were going to, they were having so much success with it. They, I don't think they wanted to back away from him. And, and yeah, the personal side must be huge. I mean, I heard stories off the record um, that he goes, he, you know, there was lots of lunches and he was buddies with a lot of these guys. Um, and it, and when he went on to campus, there's a good story Ken Go tells. He, I think he told it off camera. Ken Go said he was walking around the campus and he, Ken Go, who was with the or, Oregonian for years, he, everyone thinks that he had this special relationship with Salazar or whatever, but he actually said, no, it was more of a journalistic like I treated him fairly and he gave me access. And so he would go on campus and Ken, Ken had a funny story about how he would go on and the Nike uh, marketing people would come on and try and kick him off campus immediately until Alberta would just go up and supposedly Alberta would walk up and didn't matter who came in. Alberto had, was able to do whatever he, if he said, Ken stays, Ken stays. And everyone's like, okay, Alberto said he'd say. So, you know, and I thought that was a, it was a good story that Ken told me. Uh, didn't make it into the film, but I thought it was a good story. And I, it sort of shows, you know, he was the big man on campus and he was respected as so. One thing I really liked about the film was, it, I mean, it's entertaining, but all of the like archival footage, Olympic footage, world championship, it was amazing. Like I was pumped up. And I think as a kid, Alberto Salazar must have inspired me. I, I can't remember which New York City marathon I watched. You know, you don't remember stuff kind of 15 years before you came of age very well. But you, once you become of age, you know everything that happened in the sport. But the footage was amazing. Like, do you have to pay to use that? Or are you sort of just using it and hope they don't sue you? How does that work? Well, there's there's laws in the U.S. and Canada, uh, fair use and fair dealings laws that you can follow under. Um, but most, yes, most of the film is paid for. So I had to license um, that footage of Salazar during um, Boston in 82 and all the New York footage in 80, 81. There's a guy actually out in New Jersey who um, shot a film for one of the networks back then. And he got, had a lot of that footage. So I was able to track that down, which turned out to be just a gold mine. Um, but yeah, it was super, some of it was super expensive, like ridiculously expensive. The still photography, um, I had to use a lot of stills in for the Olympic footage, obviously of, you know, of um, certain things, but if somebody is actually under Canadian law, if somebody's actually speaking and content talking about like Matthew centers, won the Olympic gold medal. You're allowed in fair use to use up to a few seconds to, to show this. So all my league, I had legal teams scouring over how much was use usable and wasn't, um, so a lot of the footage was great. Um, the big, but, and then I had a huge bill from the world athletics. I, I don't even want to, uh, it's, it's hard for me to talk about the amount of money uh, <laughs> as a, as an independence producer. Um, but this comes to a point. I want, I want to make a point about this. And I've, I've said this a couple on a couple of other places, but I find that our sport just shoots itself in the foot about licensing. Like, when I called you, I think, well, and you recall, like when I was in the edit process, I said, hey, you got this footage of you. You had interviewed uh, Centrowitz about this. Can I use the footage? How do I go about it to license? And you just said, if it's up there, just use it. And you sent me a note. <laughs> like, and I'm like, OK, well, thank you. But 
I'd have to go through this weird process of going through this. So in the rough cut, I had talked to FlowTrack about this. And I had probably five to seven minutes of flow track footage because they went out with the team for, I don't know if you remember that series. It had this incredible footage. So I was using it. I had talked to two of the senior guys there. They were fine. As soon as I went to license it, I said, like, let's come up with a deal here. They, they, they stonewalled me and said, pull every piece of footage. Like, you're, we're out. We're not doing this. And I said, are you kidding me? Like, no explanation. And then... I hear through the grapevine that it's because they just didn't want to piss off. They were worried what the film was going to do. They, I wasn't going to show them a rough cut, obviously. So they were worried that Nike's going to look bad, I guess, or whoever. Or maybe they're going to lose access to some of the athletes who are in the project in the future. And I said, like, you guys, like, you know, this is killing us as a sport. By you guys not allowing me to tell a story, good or bad, you're you're dealing with this. And then you, you talk to the Olympics. They're the worst. Uh, like, I... I've got the story. I was pitching the top guys at ESPN on a new story and about, well, I'll tell you, it was like about Carl Lewis. And they said, well, no, we're not, we won't talk about Carl Lewis. I said, why? Like they wouldn't even hear the pitch. Uh, he was at the Olympics. We don't deal with the Olympics. If there's Olympic footage necessary in your film, unless it's a little bit, we don't want it. If your main story is about an Olympic event, you're, we're out. So the Olympics is shooting themselves in the foot about telling their own stories by being so asinine about their licensing, uh, you know, of the footage. And it, it drives me crazy. So flow track, uh, that, that was a trouble. Um, dealing with the uh, New York times on the Mary Kane footage was very troublesome. As soon as they find out Nike's involved, we're out. Um, even the Chicago marathon, like, they they came around finally and I, I and I'm so glad they did. They were great actually at the end. So I don't want to give them a hard time. But like they were asking, like, how's Nike gonna be portrayed? I'm like, guys, you know, we shouldn't be worrying too much about that. I feel like the more stories we tell about the sport, the bigger our sport gets. And so I I, I think rights holders have to think about that. And I know you guys had to deal with it at the world at the Olympics. Like you guys were doing the after interviews. No one's gonna see that footage. Why, why couldn't you have shown like a, an interview of somebody from the mix zone and they're, they blocked you. I think that's crazy. I think that's like insane to me, particularly if it's not going to affect the, the viewing audience at the time, but it would actually build up interest in the sport. And I, I don't know, I've got a bunch to say more on that. It drives me nuts. And I, as doing my first uh, sports doc and my first track doc, it, it actually makes me think twice about doing another one because of the hassles and the hurdles. I, like it literally is months and months of hurdles to get over to, to make the, the film. So that was a bit of a pain to tell you the truth. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. So let me just try to clarify You're saying ESPN won't touch any Olympic themed films because the rights to, to, to the footage is too expensive. No, they can't get them in perpetuity. So the Olympics blocks it. They want a five-year license, and then you have to renegotiate. No filmmaker ever wants to have to renegotiate your contracts after five years. You want a film that's going to be – so you usually do what's called a full buyout, and you just buy out the footage in perpetuity. You pay it uh, You pay a premium to do that, but you just clear it. And I have a fairly senior guy. Not, I won't say who it was, but somebody at ESPN said, yeah, like it's been a massive issue for them. So anyone who's just in the Olympic sports, you're wondering why, well, why aren't our, why isn't our sport being on ESPN 30 for 30? Well, I'll tell you, one of the reasons is the Olympic Association. <laughs> like, is the IW, sorry, the uh, 
Yeah, it's the it's it's the uh, it's the Olympics. It's not actually IAAF has been better. Uh, World Athletics was definitely more open, um, so that's good. Um, but yeah, like it's it's bad, and you know, and like I was a little pissed off with flow track because I then I had to go on this mad scramble to get still photography to cover uh, a lot of it, a lot of the footage I had, and uh, I, I was able to like. I had a great researcher. He found some amazing stuff like that stuff with the guys in the treadmills in the pool and stuff that I had. Um, that was crazy stuff. We found that from like a, a corporation out in Portland who uh, actually had the rights to that. So yeah, we found all these weird places where the footage was. The flow track thing's amazing. I heard about that in the past, you know, that they would sort of like protect shoe companies, but I feel like their models evolved. I mean, they have all this venture funding. Their model really is let's get hardcore parents, relatives fans whatever to pay to watch close relatives sort of it's not really like mass viewing it's like very niche i feel like they're not making as much money from going to brooks or nike and say hey you know those companies were paying them behind the scenes to cover stuff and it wasn't it was sort of a mix of journalism and advertising i thought they were away from that but you have tons of olympic footage in there right like so that costs an arm and a leg and it's done in five years or you can Go beyond five years. Uh, no, the still the stills and everything are all clear. Like, yeah, everything in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I should be okay. Uh, at least my I am I'm legally covered. Uh, we have what's called errors and emissions insurance, and it has to get cleared by the legal team. So they went through. Every clip has been allocated. Yeah, so it's it's not that much welded actually. It's very small little bits. I made it look like it's more because I go in from a two second clip to a still. And it makes it feel longer than it is. So uh, that's a little trick you do as a filmmaker. <laughs> well, I was entertained because, you know, a lot of times you do watch these Olympic docs and you can tell they don't have the money or they don't do what you did because you'll see some still photo. And it's kind of crazy. Like, yeah, we, we're not even allowed to play the audio from an interview at the Olympics. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe going forward, they can attach, you know, digital coins to the footage and take a cut of the money or something. I, I wouldn't mind doing that. Like, it's not like we're making any money off some audio interview from the Olympics. Oh, I, I'd love to treat them and pay them properly for it. Just, you know, license it, you know, they got, that's the, that's a bit of the issue. Right. So. It's, it's kind of interesting if, if people, they want to know the outcome of the store before they agree to, you know, license it to you. And I think that's a problem just in modern society. Like if there's something that you don't agree with, you don't even want it on the air anymore. And like when I was watching the documentary, I mean, I didn't know which direction it was going to go. I didn't know if you were going to take a side or, you know, whatever, but I still was enjoying it because I'm like, he's presenting both sides. I mean, sort of early on, you were asking Weldon, like, do you think that the timing of the Salazar ban was suspicious? And I was like, wait, that's making it look like, you know, you're, he's pro Salazar. But then later you, you know, you counterbalance that very well. Um, with, with a couple other things. So I just thought the balance, you know, was quite good. And um, yeah, just the, overall, it was quite good. You know, I think sort of Weldon, before we started recording the podcast, he told me um, privately that it was six figures in terms of, you know, licensing fees to, to get all this film. So it was quite expensive. I guess these films were more expensive than I would think. So in terms of, of the fees, the biggest question I have though, um, Paul is how much do you think Nike paid Malcolm Gladwell to be Salazar spokesman? Because the whole thing was people going against Salazar and then 
Gladwell was amazing. I, this film could not be made without Malcolm Gladwell because he was defending Salazar, you know, just from start to finish. I'm joking about him being paid by Nike, although it did cross my mind. But, you know, <laughs> he's got some amazing lines in there. He's like, you know, you don't go to Alberto Salazar if you're looking to enjoy yourself. He's on a level of craziness that, you know, it's way up there. So how did you find Gladwell? Were you surprised how pro Salazar he was, et cetera? Well, I didn't know what, you know, when you're interviewing somebody, you don't know what they're going to say, but I had read his um, Slackers article from the New Yorker in 2012. Uh, and so I knew he was slightly obsessed with him. And I, um, I got to know Malcolm about uh, six years ago. He happens to be from a town. We both lived in the, his mom and dad lived in this small town in, in Ontario. And one day I was in a coffee shop. He was sitting there and I just said, are you Malcolm Gladwell? And he goes, Oh, yes I am. And uh, so we started talking about running and I said, Hey, do you want to go for a run? And it was winter. And he goes, yeah. I mean, cause he was in for Christmas or whatever. And I said, yeah. So like we met up and we went for a, two or three runs, uh, just six mile runs or whatever. And, uh, he's, he's a, he's actually a great athlete for his age. Like he can, he can hold like a seven minute mile, no problem. Like, like faster. And, uh, so we went out for runs and we, so we just got to know each other. Um, and then I went down to New York a few times when he was there and I give him a ring and we'd meet at central park and do a workout or whatever. So that's how I got to know him. Um, so I, over that time, I got to know that he was somewhat um, obsessed with Salazar. <laughs> so he he uh, he knew about that. So I hadn't seen him in a while. And then I said, I'm working on the Salazar film. Would you, I'd like to hear your point of view. Cause you spent three days out at Park City with them at the, you know, the altitude camp and what you want to, and he goes, yeah, sure. Come, come up. So I went to his headquarters of his new podcasting company in upstate New York. And, uh, the, the deal was I had to do a seven mile run with him on this, this hilly course after, and it was on the 15th or 17th day of my trip across the States during COVID where I was like me and a cameraman. <laughs> I was so exhausted and he put the boots to me and I was like, it was terrible. Um, I, he dropped me. I think he, I, he dropped me at five and a half miles and he did the last mile and a half and I couldn't, I couldn't hang in there. But to, to answer your question. Um, yeah. I didn't know what he was going to say, but the way we got into the discussion, the, the interview is just fantastic. Like I cut out, I, I think it was 45 or maybe no, it was 55 minute interview with him. I cut out half of it and he's still a huge amount of the film. And cause he was so good on so many subjects but he's, he's thought deeply about this. And I felt like he was making the argument. He was, he was trying to take the contrarian argument. And I felt like that created such good tension in the film. I had to go with it. And every time I would show a rough cut to somebody, they were like, I'd say, so what, what did you like? What did you like? They said, whatever you do, don't cut a word of Gladwell. Like everyone said the same thing. And I said, okay, well, he stays. And then because I did a whole bunch of other, there's a whole bunch of stuff that got cut on the, on the cutting room floor. It was a three hour cut at one time and then you, you cut it down. But uh, yeah, so Gladwell's, he was fun. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you liked him. But boy, um, you know, some people have really taken after him for what he said in the film. I mean, I've read some stuff online about it and uh, I get asked about like, how, how can he defend him and the Mary Kane thing? Um, you know, how could he blame her parents? And I said, well, these are 
that, that's his opinion and he's making a, an argument um, about that. And, and I don't know, like it's, it's something to be thought about. Like why would you let a 15 or 16 year old kid go there? And he makes that statement and he get he got a lot of shit for that. Sorry. Yeah. For those of you that haven't seen the film yet, I mean, basically Guy Wells point is Salazar was a guy that could push his body in Guy Wells opinion. His key was, Salazar could go 100%. He gave more effort than most runners. He may not have been the most talented, but it was all in, and he was all in on coaching. And this was a guy that almost ran himself into death at the Falmouth Rod Road Race, you know, would go all in. So that's what he's going to do in coaching. People should have known this. And, you know, th this was sort of, um, you know, th there's sort of your average coach that's like a parent and tries to make it fun. This is elite athletics. And, you know, you sign up for that. It's win at all costs. And my, my complaint with that would be, I remember when Mary Kane signed, signed with Salazar, was going to go with Salazar. I remember thinking someone should call her parents up because yeah, Gladwell knows all this stuff about Falmouth. And I didn't realize this, that Salazar turned down water at a comrades ultra marathon because he didn't want the, he didn't want the weight on. So yeah, I mean, Gladwell knows that because he's obsessed with running and obsessed with Salazar. But the average person, particularly someone whose daughter's you know 16 years old, who's been running seriously for four or five years, they don't have the history of the sport. They don't know that. So I would actually really probably blame the agent the most, not the parents. So I can see why people don't like that. But I, I just thought it was really, again, that's Gladwell's opinion. What's wrong with that? Um, if I, you know, and we've had Gladwell on the podcast. Um, and again, I missed that, that show as well. I seem to miss the most important interviews, but if Gladwell was on and maybe we should have him on his narrative, you know, he, he seems to be saying throughout the film that Salazar is a guy that goes all in. It was all about giving a hundred percent effort if a, if a guy that's giving his all. Why would he cut corners? You know, that person's not going to cheat and cut corners. And I just don't agree with that argument. I, I, this reminds me of the criticisms of Gladwell's book. There's a great theme to the books. But then a lot of the scientists think, you know what? That's actually not true. And I think that this is a great narrative. Oh, Salazar does 100%. That means he won't cross the line. Well, what do you mean? Lance Armstrong worked his ass off, and he clearly crossed the line. So I just don't agree with that logic at, at the ultimate, but I found it to be fascinating. I think a lot of it is true. People don't point out the fact that Mary Kane made a ton of money with Nike. Um, you know, she was – even when – and I was thinking about this, the most terrible allegations – She's an 18, 19-year-old legal adult when, the, when those happen. Do I think he should have handled it a lot better? Absolutely. But people are still acting like it was child abuse at that point. So anyways, I don't, I don't want to get off. Well, and I, should, I should mention that I did off, like I did speak to Mary for about an hour on the phone. And, and she, did, she after that long discussion, I thought she would, I was in New York. I tried to contact her several times. She had, her agent had, giving me an indication she was going to do the interview and she just declined. So she didn't like, she was given the opportunity to comment about it, but she, I think didn't, well, I, I gave her a sense of where I was going with the film. So I think she didn't really want to play a part in it. And um, so I said, well, okay, so there you go. I can't do much about that. So that was, that's a criticism I've had. Like some people have had criticisms, like you should have had, you know, where was she? And I said, well, okay, like you, you, you do your best, but uh, sometimes you can't get people. It's hard to find people. And also I was traveling during COVID during this, this was, it was just hell. Like I had to go from one state to another and make sure that there wasn't some restriction or 14 day quarantine. So I had to fly to meet Cam Levins and 
Cedar City, Utah, drive across the Colorado border for eight hours to get to Boulder and then fly from Boulder to Oregon because there was no, uh, there was basically no uh, uh, COVID uh, quarantine. And then that was clear from Portland to New York was okay. Like, so I had to like map this trip. It was very difficult to get, like, there's a couple of people I would have really liked to have talked to Amy Begley to tell you the truth. I couldn't get down there. Like they had these crazy, like there was all this crazy stuff going on. And I was doing this in October and November, like right around the election. Um, and COVID was flying around the States. <laughs> Canada was trying to put border con- constraints on me. And so it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest film. So, you know, I did my best with the number of people I could get in the most, most efficient way. So. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about criticism since I guess there, there are some, another criticism you said you wanted to have um, Mary Kane on there was seeing some of the people on Twitter saying there was no women. You did have Kara Goucher on film, but you didn't interview any women journalists to provide perspective. Any response to that? Yeah, I think it's a fair criticism. I'll take it. I, uh, you know, in, again, I wanted I wanted to talk to more people who had been with Selzer from the beginning. There weren't a lot of females around the program back in the you know, 90s and early 2000s. So those people who were around him were guys. Um, I probably should have. Uh, Colleen Quigley agreed to do an interview. I wanted to talk to her from about Nike, the other side of Nike, with um, and Colleen agreed to do the interview, but I had already left Portland. <laughs> so by the time, it was, again, timing, all these sort of things. Uh, I wanted to get her perspective um, from that side. Uh, I approached uh, Paula Radcliffe declined. She, because Jordan has, like I talked to her, she said she would talk to me the day after the Olympic trials. Um, Paula um, had agreed to do the interview. We had it set up. I had the interview room set up similar to what I did with Weldon and John. And uh, Jordan Hussey had a bad race and she just, I don't know. I just, she, she got out of, Dodge. Uh, she left and she just said, sorry, can't do it. And that's it. So it's not like I didn't put the effort in, um, to get some really good high end perspectives on this. Um, it's just didn't happen. I guess I could have found somebody in Toronto, like a local person, but it was kind of like, okay, what am I doing that for? Right. Well, Paul, I think it's refreshing. You can you can admit, hey, some criticism is valid. Nothing's perfect. There's there's nothing wrong with that. And your comment about there not being a lot of women from Salazar to the beginning, I think that's why Mary Kane had a bad experience there. He wasn't he experienced coaching women. He had not been taught some of these things, particularly in the stuff women's coaching. Just in the last five or ten years, has has been transformed at the collegiate level. Um, and you know, he treated Salazar. He tried to treat Mary Kane like he would his men and that ultimately was not you don't treat a teenage girl the same way you would treat you know a 28 year old man i don't think so that you know that's kind of interesting um on that front factually john and i had the same thing you know in terms of the one thing that we thought was was left out in, in the most sense of was there was talk in there about the testosterone cream that salazar had access to you know, but would he ever go, and the experiments on his son? But to me, the the biggest thing that was left out was there was never any mention that Salazar has since admitted that a he was on testosterone when he was running, and b I don't know if you if you're aware of this. You know who John Steiner is, the massage therapist at one point for the Nike Oregon Project, 
said he thought it was very weird that Salazar would give him the night off before a race and he would massage Galen Rupp. So to me, that would be the big, one of the big questions was, would he cross the line? He's on the gray line. Gladwell says he won't go over it because it's all about giving maximum effort. To me, I thought you should have had that counterbalance of, well, he did take testosterone when he ran himself. Also, Mary Slaney, he, who he coached, did test positive or not test positive, but her ratio was too high. And thirdly, the massage therapist had the night off. Why weren't those three things in there? Because I think they should have been. Uh, I didn't know about the massage therapist story, to tell you the truth. So that's in me. I should probably check my facts on that, I guess. Uh, they, yeah, like the – here's the thing. The 90 – the 91 to 94, he admitted taking testosterone as, a, like, but, but he wasn't actually competing during those years. He came back and inexplicably ran the Comrades Marathon in 95. So the question was, what were they testing at that time? He did admit that, um, but he was doing it. But you got to remember, he had destroyed his body um, in 1984. Like basically he had crashed and burned. He went from 83 being, 82, 83 being the best runner in the world to making the Olympic team. And then he, he falls off the map and he, he writes about this in his book um, quite, quite compellingly about what happened. And he was doing anything to get himself back, just feeling normal. He felt like, he felt like his endocrine system had crashed and all. So, yeah, I guess I could have, I could have put that in there. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel like it necessarily, had anything to do with the USADA report. I mean, everything like it was noted on one of the John point as John pointed out to me in an email, <laughs> it was pointed out on some on page 89 of the, <laughs> uh, of the, of the report. And I did, I had read that before, but I think that's fair. Um, the here's, here's the thing guys, like, and this is, I've been thinking about this a lot. So, the reason, like, Kara Goucher to this day, she's been tweeting out since the film's come out, more stuff will come out, let the day become when more stuff will come out. And I've talked to Kara a long time. I had a long interview, like almost two hours with her. I let her say everything she wanted to say. Like, if anyone wants to read that transcript, call me, I'll send it. No problem. Like, there was nothing. I'm not hiding anything, whatever. But here's the thing. Anyone who is in the program, it's going to be like your Floyd Landis story. If somebody like Floyd Landis comes forward and says, I, I did it and I'm going to bring down Lance with me. I'll do it. If any of those athletes actually implicate Salazar, they're actually implicating themselves. And this is like the, the, it's almost like you can't. So how do you prove that? So is there something there? I think, you know, maybe there was something there, but we can't prove it. We don't know who did what. And there can't, there's this, it's like a circular argument. So, is Kara Gosser going to say, well, yeah, he gave me some some illegal thing, but then she has to admit she took it when she was with him. So like, I don't know. Like, I have everything she said, every argument that she made about Alberto's sketchiness is in the film. It's there. Like, I, it's, it's, I, I didn't hide anything from that. So the idea that there's something that the USADA knows that like I kept hearing this, the USADA knows there's a pile of evidence. Travis Taggart has this pile of, okay, guys, where is it? Like if that's there, so are they just, are they just banning him because they, they can't pin him on, so they can't pin him on anything specific. So they're just going to say, 
here's these 10 sort of sketchy things he did. That's what we're doing. And that's basically what I think they're doing. Um, they don't have enough direct evidence. And so my film tries to deal with that. And I think I, I did a fairly good job of defending his point of view in it um, from that. I agree. I mean, I, I think that you just nailed the the biggest conundrum about this whole thing. Like Salazar's a master coach. He's been banned from the sport, but no athletes have been banned. It doesn't make any sense. And then Carrot, the athletes themselves are saying, oh, he's terrible. He did all this stuff, but they don't have proof. So Weldon kind of hinted at about that, the inner sanctum, maybe wrapping. So I've heard it speculated that some think maybe I've heard it from prominent people that, you know, like other coaches, you know, who would have knowledge of this. Like, do I, do they think that there's widespread doping like EPO on the team? No, but could that have possibly been going on with just a select few like Robert Farah? I guess it's possible, but you know, it, it's just very, yeah. Yes. You know, Kara doesn't want to admit to that. Cause that could be the end of her broadcasting career. Cause the, the society's not very forgiving. I mean, society's forgiving, but uh, there's also cancel culture going on at the same time. So if you're Amy Yoder Bagley and you're coaching at the Atlanta track club and you admit to being doped, I mean, I'd heard that, you know, off the record, someone's like, Oh, uh, she thinks she may have been doped without knowing it, but she doesn't want to admit that. Now I don't know if the story is true or not, but because if she admits it, then she's a doper, you know? So it is kind of complicated. One thing I wasn't sure about, and maybe John or Weldon could help me out here was, you know, Kara said she left because she got suspicious. Oh, and there was one bombshell in there. She said she saw pills that were supposedly were vitamin B and vitamin P, B pills are soft. These weren't soft pills. So she was implying he was giving out hardcore drugs, which I had never heard before. So that's, so that shocked me, but she implied she left because she got suspicious of this. Is that true? I thought she kind of left because her, performance dropped i've also heard rumors or john thinks this may have been published somewhere that alberto salazar hit drunkenly made a pass at her on a plane do we have any information on that john about why she left john can you help me out here well yeah i think it was she was growing suspicious of this stuff and also the restrictions when she was forced to come back and race when she was pregnant, I believe it was the 2011 Boston Marathon. It was right after she had given birth to her son and they made her come back and race. She didn't like how Nike had been treating her. So I think it was a combination of things. Um, but that attempted kiss on the flight to the Daegu Worlds, uh, I think that that played a, that probably played a, played a role. And what year was that? 2011. Yeah. And when was she pregnant and everything? She, so she was pregnant. I think she gave birth in 2010. She came back and ran the Boston Marathon quickly in 2011. And then 2011 Worlds, there was the attempted kiss. And then at the Worlds, there were some, I think there was a, Rupp was given some IV and she she wasn't totally comfortable with that. So I think it was a culmination of those things that made her just want to move on. Well, that, that makes sense to me. Pressure to lose weight after pregnancy, uh, sexual harassment, attempted kiss, and then, you know, the, the fake dehydration for the other people. Pretty interesting. I, I don't know. I heard this off the record from two people too that just said like um, her husband's relationship with Salazar was just sour, and that he would have been having quite a bit of an impact on her views of this. So she was running with him, still running fairly well, and like she came back from pregnancy, ran a pretty good marathon. But um, you know, you, you'd have to ask her these questions. But yeah, um, I think that's part of it. But here's a story that didn't get in the cut. It was actually in the rough cut prior to it. She actually talked about how Nike had a party for her about her pregnancy. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a great um, little anecdote of what, what happened. So 
I think it was John Capriotti was there. Salazar was there and they were like, okay, you're pregnant. Great. So she, they actually had pushed her to do about 10 photo shoots, like as she was pregnant, um, you know, promoting the brand. Then she goes in, has the baby, it's big news. And then all of a sudden they're putting pressure on her and they deduct her, her, her contract because of she didn't, she didn't race. So it's sort of the Alicia Montano story, the Allison Felix story. It's about the pregnancy and not being able to. And she's, she was quite disgusted with Nike because they had made such a big deal that they had, you know, had this party and, and that it had, they were celebrating her pregnancy and Alberto, I don't had any, I don't think had anything to do with this. I think it's more Nike. And so that really soured it with her. I, I felt uh, was in, in her mind was like, how do you have a party and do this? And then deduct me after I've gone out of my way to get on these photo shoots, promoting the brand. And then, and so add that to all the other things. I think that's, she just probably wanted to go. And that's when she went in 2013 to the USADA. So. Yeah, that I mean, that's covered very well in Matt Hart's book, When It All Costs. He has a lot of interviews with Goucher and, you know, explaining why she left. And I think a lot of women, you know, sort of women's rights is one thing in theory when you're young, but then when you have kids, it's totally different. It's, it's, you realize, wait a minute, women aren't being supported in pregnancy. Um, so it's great. It's kind of ironic, actually, because, you know, they used to have a Nike employee, Craig Mosbach, who was doing all the NBC television broadcasts. And now they have Kara Goucher, who's not really pro-Nike doing them. And by the way, Kara's sort of a natural for TV. She's doing a great job. Everyone I know who watched the Olympics, I was at the Olympics. I didn't get to hear it. Said she was amazing. So I hope Kara fans don't think I'm anti-Kara. I, I think Kara's fantastic. And I've always respected her for, for, you know, speaking out. And, you know, imagine imagine if you're Adam Goucher, you know, your running didn't go well under Salazar. And then your wife has a really close relationship with this guy. Now, just even in any marriage, that sometimes can be problematic. Any relationship with the opposite sex, is, he's, he's fine with it until he finds out that, yo, he tried to make a pass at his wife, allegedly. And that then it's like game over. Like, you can't come back from that. So pretty interesting. All right, Robert. Okay, yeah, a, few, a few other things, John, here. Um, John doesn't want me to talk about that too much. But... Um, <laughs> Jeez. Well, I wanted to hop in. I, I, I'd never seen before this Mo Farah footage where Mo Farah was sort of, at, I guess it was when he was being asked about the El Carnitine by the British press. I had never seen that, I guess, because I'm an American. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. When I saw that, my gut reaction was, wow, he looks like he's hiding something. He looks guilty as hell. So I thought that was amazing footage. Where did you find that? Uh, well, I mean, it. BBC did a documentary on it, actually. It's in, I think I took it, that's a BBC piece, actually. I think I paid for that. I honestly, I'd have to check on that one. But yeah, like the whole Al Carnitine, um, that's a well known story about him walking out of the off, out of the room and then coming back in and, and, uh, you know, saying, well, yeah, I kind of misremembered, I think was the word. <laughs> I did have a, and Weldon, I liked your, it was like butterfly needle. <laughs> you know, uh, it, I thought, I thought you actually told the story quite well about that. Um, and I, I, I just think that it, it was a good story. And I, I feel like the only part of, of that part of the story I felt bad about was like with Dathan Ritzenheim, he is such a nice guy and he, he just couldn't talk about it. And he felt like he was going to get called again to the USADA on that. So I had to put that in there, but he wouldn't answer the question. So I was like, okay, well, uh, 
you took these things. How much did you take? You know, I was asking him those questions and he said, like, I can't talk about that. Um, well, so I thought that was amazing footage. I'd never seen that. And I thought I was just going to bring that up right here. I, I thought Ritzenheim looked very guilty, very, very. I, what do you mean you can't answer about it? Ritz? There, there's no law saying just because you're going to testify in a court case that you can't talk to a filmmaker about it. So I, I did not like that part about Ritzenheim. But again, folks, if you're a Ritz fan, we can disagree. We all make mistakes. Paul has admitted to a mistake on this very podcast. So I just thought like, wow, why won't he answer these questions? I should mention that Ritzenheim also and, and on running club, let me like, this is right when they were just starting and I, they were so great to me. And like, they gave me a lot of access and he was awesome on camera. We talked about uh, alter G's. We talked about injuries. We talked about contracts and that was all in the longer rough cut. And, in, you know, I sort of feel like, you know, if anything in the film bugs me a little bit, it's like he kind of comes off looking a little bit sketchy in that moment when he, sh it shouldn't really be. Cause he went, he, he did admit it. He was basically, they said, yeah, like you shouldn't have done, you shouldn't have been on the, on the needle. And, but at the end of the day, he's, you know, his, his legacy is still amazing. He ran great under Salazar and, you know, and he's one of America's greatest runners and I totally respect the guy. And he was so nice. Like he was such an open guy. So, but I had to leave that part in there because that was an important part of the film. Right. Well, it's great that you say that. And it's, it's great that Ritz agreed to be on camera because a lot of these other people close didn't agree to do it. And I had heard that, you know, it's, this is actually published that he was like this, when they said, we're going to get the El Carnitine, he's like, this doesn't sound legal. Are you sure this is legal? Like he pushed them three or four times. Is this legal? They said yes. And then it finds out they may have given him too much. That was never really determined. And then they also were giving him drugs that may cause cancer. So, uh, you know, when he left the group, you know, I heard behind the scenes, he was irate. He had to lawyer up. He ran the Boston Marathon that year and did not wear the Nike Oregon Project singlet. So he's tried to, I believe Ritz tried to do the right thing. You know, um, I know some of his ex-teammates at Colorado think that he may have inadvertently crossed the line. Well, not, you know, again, this is one of the things we may probably, you know, never know. Oh, he was like, and I agree. Like he, he, I think he's a little bit upset about like how, um, how that it all ended with Nike. I mean, like obviously he was treated very well. He had an amazing career there. Nike was with him from what, 2003, I think, or 2004, whenever he went. Yeah. I guess he went to the Olympics 2004. I mean, he had an incredible career with Nike. So, but you know, on, and I did a whole section on new running clubs. And so I looked at on and I talked to Hoka, some guys at Hoka as well. And uh, it was, uh, that just got cut out of the film, but the on thing is interesting because I actually think it's um, where on is kind of filling a hole. And so some, some of these other distance groups are filling the hole. Now it, it, this is fantastic. Like I think Nike started that like Hanson started small, made a huge impression on, on the sport and then Nike corporatized it. And now we're kind of getting this blending in between the two kind of, uh, ideas. And I think that's been great for the sport. And I'm, I'm glad on's doing this and on's been like super successful. Like that, like they did great at the Olympics. Like they had like Klecker and Monson and, it, and it looks like they've got a, just a whole team, a, a stream of guys coming out and Oliver Hoare. So those guys are all doing great. So like, I'm, I'm happy that he's landed on his feet and uh, that Boulder's got a new, a new club. So. All right. I want to hop in here, Robert, 
you shared when you watched the documentary last night, you shared a Google Doc. This is like your secret notes when you prepare for the podcast. I got a look inside the mind of Robert Johnson. Robert also said he may have ingested a beer or two while watching this. So it was very unfiltered. He used different color fonts. He used bold. He used all caps. It was crazy. And I actually took down some of my favorite notes from Rojo's notes because I feel like some of them, we could open them up to a Rojo's rant here or some unhinged you know, ranting from Robert. So I'm going to present just a few of my favorite lines. And as long as Robert's okay with us keeping in the podcast, maybe he can give us his reactions to them. So this is, you know, in no particular order. Weldon looks hungover. How does he find clips from Irish TV? John Galt needs to apologize. John Galt needs to be fired. Co needs to be fired. All caps, Rojo is vindicated. My God, this is a Rojo victory lap. Jake Riley should be shot. Can you explain some of those for me, Robert? <laughs> wow, Jake Riley should be shot. I don't even remember that one. Okay. <laughs> I'll take it one by one. Weldon looks hungover. Apparently that's been confirmed because he's, he was at the Olympic trials. John, when you're in your mid-40s, you can't even have two beers at, late at night and get up the next morning for an interview. So he, what Weldon said was great on the film, but he wasn't smiling. This is also partially me just being a little jealous that I wasn't on film. I like to think of myself as a slightly, since I'm not nearly as accomplished as Weldon, I like to think of myself as slightly more charismatic, camera friendly. Since I am a broadcast journalist, the reason actually I wasn't in Atlanta was I was doing the broadcast of the Ivy League championships on ESPN3. Um, I wanted to know how, he, oh, how, I said John Galt, how did he find the clips is one of the questions I had, right? Uh, yeah, don't really worry about that. I mean, I assume, yeah, you license it from Irish. People. John Galt needs to apologize and John Galt needs to be fired. So that was when I was watching the part. And so the first hour of the show is, is basically on Salazar. And then you segue into the Vaporfly controversy. Correct. And John had, had texted me earlier about the show saying, yeah, then he goes into this. And John's when Weldon said the show was amazing, John's like, yeah, but why did they go into the shoes? I thought that was kind of stretching things. I love the, the jump from the Salazar to the shoes. I thought it was perfect. And John's like, John made some, John was quoted on camera saying like, you know, they didn't break any rules. And I had written a piece on this about how they did break the rules. The shoes are supposed to provide grip to the ground, not provide an unfair advantage. How is a 2% advantage not unfair? And I thought you had all these people saying this, like Salazar's taking some drug and he may take a tiny bit too much and he's banned from the sport for four years, but you, you make an illegal shoe that's worth two minutes in a marathon and camouflage it to look like another shoe and nothing happened. So I couldn't believe John said they didn't break any rules, but then you did provide some other people saying that they broke the rules. But what shocked me was Weldon went on camera and basically called it mechanical doping. That's what my article said. I said, Shailene Flanagan, Galen Rupp, all these people, Elliot Kipchoge, they're guilty of mechanical doping. I say it on the podcast every other week. John thinks I'm stupid. Weldon's never defended me, but <laughs> he defends me on your film. So I'm glad to see Weldon deep down has my back. Actually, I think you're slightly wrong about it. It was Tim Hutchings who actually called it technological doping. Oh, okay. Weldon did say though that they can't, he did make the argument that he did feel like it was uh, totally unfair in 2016. Like, what are you going to do? Rerun the marathon? Like, um, and so I think you got, I think I'm going to get, get Weldon off the hook here because I'm pretty sure it was Tim Hutchins and Michael Joyner 
uh, who both said it was technological doping. <laughs> and Michael Joyner was great on the film, by the way. Oh, so then Sebco needs to be fired because it was all the shoe stuff. And then it's like, lo and behold, the shoe, the new shoe regulations come out and they fit the Nike shoe perfectly. And I thought maybe you should have mentioned, and by the way, the head of World Athletics was a former Nike executive, Seb Coe. That's why I said he should be fired there. I actually like what work Seb's done. I think, I mean, compared to what we've had in the past, he's like, you know, Abraham Lincoln or something. So uh, I, I just, in this one instance, I think he, I think he's biased because he did used to work for the shoe companies. Um, and then I, I do want to apologize. I, I think Jake Riley's a good story. I wrote that he should be shot. Oh, I, okay. I, I, I realized that John, remember Jake Riley is coming on at the very end of the show. This is when I'm three or four beers deep. And <laughs> You asked him, do you think you would have made the Olympic team if you weren't wearing those shoes? And the answer is, of course not. You would have not made the Olympic team, Jake. Now, if he'd been wearing another super shoe from another company, maybe he would have made the team. But if he doesn't have super shoes, does he make the Olympic team? I thought the fact he didn't say no just bothered me. I was like, of course you wouldn't make this. I, I, I think the insinuation is he kind of knows that he needed the shoe. And uh he was pretty honest about that. Like he, he wanted to wear them and uh, you know, it made a big difference. I mean, he didn't sign a contract so that he could wear the shoe that would best fit him for the marathon. I mean, like he did it makes the team and then signs with on after that. And actually maybe that's some of the filmmaking. Like the question is sort of, you don't put all the, you don't have, again, you don't have time to put every fact in there. And actually when I'm editing John's, written pieces on let's run he sometimes gets mad because if john doesn't put all the facts right at the top i get very upset and he likes to let it sort of be learned as you read you have no patience robert you need like great writing sometimes you just got to trust that your author (laughs) author is going to take you to where you need to go and it's like great filmmaking but john apparently sees my this is how my brain john what you were seeing was streamer consciousness in my brain how my brain was working as i was watching it because i I wanted to have notes So, but wait, do I get a chance to defend myself here, Robert, and to plead for my job if I'm I'm supposed to be fired here? Like, I'm just going to make these two points. One, the shoes they wore at no point have they ever been outlawed by World Athletics. And two, uh, prototypes, athletes have been racing in prototypes for a long time. And if you want to pretend that back, you know, in the mid 2000s or the 2010s, athletes are rating, racing in prototypes that weren't improved. They were improvements on the previous model. So you could say they're running in prototypes. They're not out in the open market. They're getting an advantage compared to what they used to have. I, I think you've got to say, oh, okay, so should all those people be DQ'd as well? I will admit this is a much bigger leap, but I don't know. To me, those two things, I think you can make the case, okay, was this kind of shady? I think it was, but... Does that mean I should we should be stripping the Olympic medals to these athletes? I don't know about that. Well, I agree. Every shoe company has wanted to do this, and it's actually possible. Adidas, you know, had a better marathon shoe, you know, what ten years ago than everybody else. But you know, it's like everybody was speeding two or three miles an hour over the limit and weren't getting pulled over, and now it's up to ten miles an hour over, and the police have started. Should I think they should start enforcing the rules at this point? Though now that it's out there, I don't think I think you could have pulled it back like they did with the swimsuits and swimming. But now that everyone has a shoe, I'm kind of fine with letting it go. Although it drives me nuts. You can't wear the shoes on a track race, which I don't yeah, like. It seems silly. Yeah. Well, I tried to balance. I tried to balance both sides of that, I think. And I, I get, I let Nike, Nike did respond to that question uh, with a written response uh, that they fell inside of the world athletics rules. 
I mean, we all know what happened in 2016 and we know that Amy Craig and, and Shailene, Flanagan, they, they were wearing them. Kara may missed the team by 40, what was it? 46 seconds or something like that. And would she have made those seconds up? Now they haven't suggested maybe she, she was wearing sketchers. <laughs> so like, <laughs> we don't know, but it's, it, there's a possibility. Um, so I, I just wanted to show that, like, I, I think what's been interesting to non-runners, that section just blows them away, by the way. I've heard so many people who don't have, don't know anything about running. They, they couldn't believe the 2016 story. And the first thing they said was, I need a pair of those shoes. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I jog around the, you know, like uh, the park and I just want to get those shoes. So Nike actually, I think, comes out looking pretty good in that. Where I do think the sketchiness was is actually in the alpha fly when they get legalized days before the U S Olympic trials and at, at 40 millimeters is the stack height. And then the shoe comes out at 39.5. Like I, I can't prove it. I think the, I made it a, a, in the film. Anyone who hasn't seen it, you should watch that section because it, it's, it's kind of intriguing section of the film. And I think it's crazy that, that has, somebody hasn't dug a little, a journalist should dig deeper on that. Like who, who made that call seconds before the OS Olympic trials to, you know, get the biggest shoe in history. Okay. Um, that's a good, that's an interesting story. My devil's advocate on that would be, why is this such a, you know, a travesty that this shoe was allowed? Like what But Nike's argument, I'm sure that they put forward to world athletics is, Hey, We've been ahead of the game here. We're putting out the best possible shoe. We've put in probably millions of dollars into research and development. We've spent a lot of time creating this shoe. You guys haven't had these limits in force. And now, right when our shoe's ready to product for production in an Olympic year, you're going to enforce these rules. Like you should make it so that our shoe is legal. The thing that we've fought for, this, you know, the whole point of us designing shoes is to make them as fast as possible. Why shouldn't that shoe be legal? Why should I mean? Because because under the World Athletics uh, rules at that time, you needed to have access. All athletes had to have access to it. And so what they did brilliantly, and I show this in the film, is they allowed the shoe to be at. They've changed the rule back now since then. But in in twenty twenty, they made the choice to. Um, they they basically said you have to have access, commercial access to the to the advantage for a short period of time. And that right. was not in place before that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm aware of that. I guess my thing is like people saying, oh, they set the limit at 40 and the alpha fly stack out was 39. There's like, clearly, you know, the jig is up here. This was inside a collusion or whatever. And I'm my thinking is like, well, why shouldn't the thing be at 40? Why shouldn't the shoe be legal? They've put all this effort into developing it and to making it as fast as possible. I guess there was, there was cases like they had those weird jumping shoes. Like, I don't know. I'm old enough to remember this. I don't know if you guys remember. I'm, I, I was, I raced between 1985 and 92. Like that's when I was competitive in track, but I remember they had these, these jumping shoes that like for high jump that they banned back then. Um, so there, there was precedent for banning shoes based on uh, an advantage. Uh, there was also, a, I think a long jump shoe that they banned back then. And then they also had a spike Back in the eight in the seventies, I'm pretty sure that they banned. Uh, Michael Joyner actually talks about this. I think the brush spike, right? For me, the brush spike. They used yeah, this at yeah, the '68 yeah, right. Olympic trials. They were saying, I think, the world record in the 400. Yeah, it's, there's a great story in Sports Illustrated from a few years ago about that. 
So it's not unprecedented that they ban these things and they right. take a look at them because there was an advantage. Nike, like, come on, like it's 70% of the people in the, in the men's race wore the Nike shoes for a reason. <laughs> you know? uh, it was, it was now, I think the other shoe companies have kind of closed the gap and it looks pretty good. Um, yeah, my friend Melinda Elmore is with Saucony and she tested, I know she tested on the treadmill and she actually said the Saucony shoe and, uh, and the Nike shoe were very, for her stride, were very close. So I know, and she wouldn't, she didn't want me to put that in the film, but she, I knew that before the film came out actually, that that was the case. So Saucony has closed, closed the gap with certain athletes. So for sure. Paul, you said you ran between 85 and 92. We now got to ask you the big questions because I'm sure some people have enjoyed what you said. I think you're a pretty smart guy, but in running, we all know people are judged by how fast they are. So, <laughs> oh, no. you know, look, I mean, you didn't even put me on the film. You put Weldon and Jonathan on there because their 10,000 min meter PBs are one and two minutes faster than mine. So what were your PRs back in the day? Uh, I was an 800 runner. I wasn't, uh, I was, I was college level. I was, I ran nationals in Canada. I ran 151, 23. Uh, and I was, uh, I was chronically shin splinted out. Uh, like I got, I had so many injuries, but I had a couple of good seasons. I ran, uh, my best 400, uh, split was 48, 42. Um, so I was kind of a, I was kind of the fourth guy on the, on the, we have province, like you guys have states, we have provinces up here. And I was on the provincial four by four team and the 800 team. So I went to Canada games. I represented university of Manitoba. We won the national title a couple of years when I was there um, as the team, we had some fast guys. I basically was forced into, we had some, some really fast back then. It was, we had a couple of, we had a guy named Chris Weber. He was like a 340, 1500 guy. Uh, he ran 1334. Uh, we had a guy named Darren Klassen. Like we had some really fast dudes on the team. So making the cross country team, I was either the sixth or seventh guy. I wasn't great at distance. As soon as you went over about a thousand meters, I started to suffer, but I've done a 109 half marathon. I've done like 30. Uh, I've done, yeah, on the roads. I've never ran a 5k on a track, but I was kind of like a 1450 guy, like on the local track 5k guy. Uh, in my thirties. <laughs> so well, that's pretty uh, good range. 48 for the 469 for the half marathon. I mean, yeah. That's what my friends tell me, I don't know. Like I, 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 I basically worked at, I, I ran 22, you know, like 22, seven for the 200, I think uh, like that was like a hand time with the coach or whatever, but like I, I had fairly good wheels back then. Um, but I wasn't, but 800 was definitely where I was more competitive. Um, but uh, like, I don't know, that was, I ran it one as a junior, I think I, I ran against, uh, well, there's some guys, like some Olympians. I'm, I'm quite good friends with Graham Hood, uh, who was an Olympian and, uh, Jason Bunston. You guys might remember those guys. They were like national level guys. And, and, uh, I used to compete against those guys and, uh, I wasn't near as good, you know, as a 151 guy, I always felt like I could break 150. I got a wind every day in 89 when I had my best year. It was windy. I just had bad days. I couldn't. I couldn't get a calm day, and that's the way it goes. That's what track is. And then I got. I got into student politics, and then I got into film. <laughs> so I only got back into running in like the late '90s because I wanted. I was getting kind of chubby, and I wanted to uh, lean out and start running again. So I started running cross country. I ran national cross country championships probably like six or seven times up here. 
Um, and our team, I was with the University of Toronto Track Club, and we ended up, I think we came second one year against the Speed River, the Guelph guys. Um, so we, we're, we're okay. Yeah. So. Well, I think you've, you've done pretty well for yourself. I ran 30, 31 flat on the roads for 10K. Like, I'm not, I'm not great in the distance. I'm not like any of the fast guys, so. You mentioned the eighties and going back to the film and with athletics West in the eighties and athletics West, you don't really talk about it much in the film, but sort of that always made me suspicious of Salazar. Cause I had heard rumors. Like I came of age and kind of, like I said, you don't know stuff kind of 10 years before you come of age, but I heard about athletics West. They were doping. Alberto Salazar was in the group. And then it sort of evolved a bit more from that. And then there was this guy in this email list named George Malley. He admits to doping. He was in Athletics West. George Malley's Malmo. He's been a long time Let's Run moderator. We need to get Malmo on the record just to say the story because he said, he's, oh, I've told you the story all the time. But did you, I guess, what are your thoughts on Athletics West? Did you look into that in any detail or is it just sort of too hard to go back that far? I mean, because you do touch on the early Nike and Alberto's running. I tried. I tried to dig that, dig up that story. I couldn't find anyone um, who would confirm it. You mentioned the Malmo thing um, on tape, I believe. There's. I heard rumors that there was some place that these guys would like the athletics guys would go once a week to this clinic in. I think it was a near. I don't even actually know where it is. Uh, where were they training back then? I guess it was in Portland, I guess, but Eugene. Yeah. And Eugene, and I don't know there, there was hearsay. It was hard to find people to, to talk about that. I don't know if that's true. Um, I mean, we know that uh, Mary Slaney uh, was busted, right? So there was, there was definitely, I think probably things going on back then. I, I had heard when I, when I was running in the late eighties, I know for a fact that people were blood doping. Uh, I could, I'm not going to mention a couple of international level runners that I actually have heard from a coach that said they were blood doping. And, you know, is that person going to go on? These aren't, these aren't athletic West people, but there's, um, so I think blood doping people were taking like the blood out of their arms and, and freezing it. And I heard this um, from the horse's mouth of somebody who did it. So it's kind of crazy story. But that was happening, and then they started, you know, obviously through the 90s, I think the EPO, like, I don't know, like, the, the most questionable time, Michael Joyner always talks about this is like, 95 to 2003 is, like, crazy number. Like, if you actually just look at the stats, it's, like, this crazy build. And so it's the EPO of that time seems to be the the big one. Um, here's, here's an interesting thing I found. I got an email. This played in Germany on July 20th. And I got an email in German from this guy and he says, I can't believe you did not. Uh, I translated it. And I was like, what the, is this guy saying that Salazar was in East Germany in 1989? He's claiming some guy sent me an email that he had gone to East Germany. I said, I don't know if this is true. I said, this is like, I go, this is, sounds like fishy to me. So I sent the Germans are actually trying to dig up this story to see if it's actually true. But this guy was convinced that he had seen Salazar in East Germany in 1989. <laughs> and I, go, I go, dude, I'm not, I'm not going on the record with that one. I'll tell you that much. I don't, uh, that seems sketchy to me, but I talked to a, a high jump coach in Toronto 
who had actually been, it wasn't unprecedented for uh, Western coaches to go to East Germany to learn their styles of coaching techniques because the East Germans were known for their technical prowess in teaching things. So is it unheard of that Salazar was there to learn some of these things? He seemed like the kind of guy who might be interested in everything scientific about it. I don't know, but I'd like to know if that was true or not. If someone can prove it, I'd love to. I'd love to know, but uh, so you know the kind of things you get when you put a film up. People will email you crazy stuff. I'm sure you guys get it all the time. But uh, yeah. that'll be a thread on the message boards after this podcast drops. Salazar, East Germany, 1989. Uh, but man, you bring up Salazar again. I'm curious about this. The end of the documentary, you pose the question: What's next for Alberto Salazar? You know, where does he go from here? Right now, he's halfway through his four year ban. His Appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport was apparently held and heard in March. We still have no idea how that turned out. I emailed the CAS last week. They have not responded about when a decision will be forthcoming. My suspicion at this point is that his appeal was denied and they've just kept the whole details of that confidential. But what do you think is next for Alberto Salazar and what happens, you know, either if his ban is reversed or if once his ban expires in 2023? Well, uh, I tried to get in touch with the court of arbitration for sport to find out as well. I found, I mean, this was hard making the end of the film because I, I wanted the film to drop and I didn't want the arbitra- court of arbitration, like in a weird way by them not doing it has helped me with the film because it's still the, the evidence is still, you know, pending. Um, so I was panicked that they were going to come out just before the Olympics to do this. And I, I can't get an answer as to why they've waited so long. I should mention that I did I did try and get in touch with Alberto several times. I had some of his friends um, try and get him. I, he he knows I wanted to talk to him, and I think he felt like I was going to give him a fair shake, to tell you the truth, uh, because some of the people in the film, they also knew him. So they, they did try and get a hold of him, and then I sent him a trailer. Of, <laughs> I sent him a trailer of the film, uh, like – as I was working through it, I said, okay, like it was like a four minute piece and it showed some of the stuff that was going to be in the film. And I know he watched it because I tracked the uh, Vimeo. (laughs) So so I know it went to him and I know he watched it. So, and then the next day I got a phone call from his lawyer saying, what's this about? Like, and I could tell that he had probably contacted his lawyer to say, Hey, I wouldn't mind talking to this guy because his lawyer wasn't antagonistic at all. I think they were just trying to figure out, what do you like? What's your angle on this? Like, how is Alberta going to play? And they wanted him to speak. I think they really wanted to him to speak, and they wanted Alberta, uh, like, um, and I don't know if Nike would have okayed it, but he seemed like open to it. And then what happened was um, the court of arbitration. They were scared. I, I basically got a third call from him um, saying, "Look, if you." tape him and then this gets out and some, something he says implicates him through the court of arbitration and we can't have that happen so we we're we're advising alberta not to speak until after the ruling so i was waiting on the ruling waiting on the ruling wait hoping to get salazar to speak and then all of a sudden it's like i got to get the film in it had to go out and so i i couldn't wait any longer so i don't think alberta was against speaking in this to tell you the truth um but that's the way it went and uh so I don't know, John. You probably know more about the court of arbitration. I I don't understand why it's seven months, six six or seven months here. 
It's absolutely absurd. They have. Prov- it's been a week, and they haven't answered why this decision hasn't come out. We did finally get the Shelby Houlihan full decision released, and that took. They said it will be out in short order. That took over two months. But at this point, I mean, my assumption is, if he was cleared, they would have come out and said he's cleared, and he would be back in the sport, or he'd be trying to coach people. And the fact that they haven't, I think that they have. If both parties agree, or maybe if one party agrees, they cannot publish some of these decisions. I need to look into that more closely. But I think it's ludicrous that they haven't announced anything about this when it was heard months ago. Well, and then in the meantime, now Safe Sport, which has come out, has banned him for life. As a for which I found very odd was uh, I, I have to look at. Sorry, I, I don't have it in front of me right now. But one of them was for abusive and sexual. Uh, you know, exploitation or something of athletes. And I was like, what? And then you go and you go to the site and it's, it's not public as to what happened or like what. So they, they basically banned them saying that this happened. I'm like, I've never heard anyone saying other than the Kara kiss thing, which I heard about, like, I don't know, you know, and that's hearsay. I don't think that's what this is about, but sexual misconduct. Like, well, I assume I've that's not, what it I've is. I've never heard that before. Um, and so that that ruling came out is odd. And then it seems like it's got from my investigation into it. And this is just in the last couple of weeks, it does have some teeth to it. So he might be out for that. Not the, not the, not the USADA report. I thought it had no teeth to it. Now maybe there's public perception, but I thought it meant you just can't get like an official pass or something. Okay. So maybe he can't get an official credential at an Olympics. I, I know it's set up by the, U.S. Congress, like, set up safe sport because Larry Nassar, all that stuff, I mean, like, full-fledged sexual abuse going on. And so I get how it's designed to first and foremost protect the victims, but, I mean, there's a whole history of justice in America that, you know, trials should be transparent, you know, the results should be released, you can confront your witnesses, that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of sort of due process stuff that bugs me. Um, I I don't know, I guess I didn't take the safe sport thing too seriously, because no one can, you can't see what's going on. And I thought he could still coach. But I guess that begs the question, what do you want to help? Alberto, if you're still listening, also, by the way, we'd love to have you in the podcast. But Paul, what do you want to happen to Alberto Salazar like if he's banned do you want him to come back to the sport like what would you like to see from Alberto because there's the doping allegations there's the safe sport ruling there's you know the Mary Kane stuff I don't know what do you think is a good outcome well I mean it's a good question I mean I, I have mixed feelings on on it because I do feel like those athletes feel like I think a lot of those athletes particularly the females in the club that came out in Chris Chavez's um, Sports Illustrated um, statement um, or his, his article, um, they feel like he should be banned. And I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I, I didn't talk to all of them personally. But then on the flip side, I'm like, you know, this guy was an incredible coach for, for 15 years and has transcended – he's almost transcended the sport – I think from what I heard, the people inside it, like when he was with them, they were, they, they, they wanted to be with him. Like he was a, he was a very close coach. He cared about them. He could be harsh at times, but 
we've all had coaches like that. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I hope that I just hope that due process comes through and that like, if the hearing, if, if, if the court of arbitration sport rules that, yeah, this, this is unequivocally, he broke the rules, then yeah, like the ban should, should hold. But in four years, I guess he can come back in 2023. Uh, I mean, it's possible. Will he want to? Nike is just can't like taking his name off the building. His name has been run through the, through the mud for, you know, two years now. Um, Mary Kane immediately, as soon as he's banned, puts out this like, just like just a devastating video about him. Um, I don't know how he comes back from this. At the same time, up until this happened, people were flocking to him. I mean, it's crazy how many people joined the club between 2015 and 2018. It's, it's, it's insane. Like we had Kajelka, we had Hassan, we had Brazier, we had, well, Murphy joined in 2016 and left, but there was an incredible Jenkins joined. There's a series of people joined. Klosterhaven joined. He was still the peak. I think people wanted to come to him for a reason. And in the German cut, I did this really interesting thing on Klosterhoven. And I asked Alex Hutchison, I said, what would, and I thought he had a great answer. It's not in this film, but uh, it was about Klosterhoven. And she, she, he goes, he says, well, why would she join after all these rumors? This was like, this is two years after ProPublica comes out. This is, you know, and you know, and I think he sums it up when you're that good, when you're eighth in the world or you're potentially eighth in the world and you've seen all these athletes move from eighth, Mo Farah being really good athlete to world champion, you're seeing this, you feel like this guy's got, and pardon the, pardon the, you know, the, the term, but like the secret sauce, so to speak. he's got something that he's going to, He's going to help. And maybe those little things are all those athletes need. They just need that little bit to move to from fourth and being an also ran to being second or third, uh, first or second is millions of dollars. It's notoriety. It's national fame. That's what they're getting out of it. And if that guy did it better than anyone else, and there's an argument that he did, um, why wouldn't you want to join him? So, and I don't think a lot of people like Galen Rupp, are too happy that he's been banned. Uh, you know, I, I think he, he took him to the top. Galen's doing okay with Mike Smith, but I don't know, like, you know, maybe he's just getting older, but is he this, and maybe he's not the athlete he was, but boy, I mean, he's done some incredible things. So I think also having him in the sport has been like incredible to watch for 20 years. I've been watching him on let's run every time there's a, a thread about Salazar, it explodes. He's good for the sport as a, as a high-profile guy, and I think that that's good. And I think we need more high-profile guys. There's not enough of them. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to see. I'd like to see him back. So long as I feel like he's he's working inside of uh, you know the rules inside of the that on the on the on the right side of it, not the bad side. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Where where does he go next? Because when I was watching documentary, it reminded me that the that the document banning him said every, they thought that he did these experiments in good faith was that's why the whole ban bothered me. I, I was someone that kind of wanted, honestly, Salazar to be banned for about 15 years. And then the ban comes out and I'm like, no, no, I didn't like this. It was too te technical to me. But then even if he was cleared to come back or if the ban's up in four years, 
it's like we live in a woke culture. Like the public opinion may be more important than any of these bands. Like his name's off the Nike thing. The safe sports stuff may be more important. You know, it's like if, if someone tries to kiss an athlete, should they be allowed to coach? But then again, like we live in a society in America, people are like you shouldn't have lifetime, you know, incarceration. You shouldn't have the death penalty. We were supposed to believe in forgiveness. So couldn't you say like four years is enough if he gets special training or maybe he just can't coach women. I mean, people don't, he does. There's never really been any allegations that he treated the men in an inhumane way. I mean, I'm just not, it's just interesting because he may be allowed to come back, but I don't think Nike's going to want to have their name associated with it. Maybe Phil Nike could just do it on the side, like as a private thing, because it's interesting. Like the quote unquote mob may be, you know, not, not allowing it, but it's pretty interesting to think about. Yeah, that's a good question. That, that was part of the film, though, how everybody was coming to him at the end. And, you know, Gladwell and these people like seem to indicate this, this proved that he was the best coach. I'm like, well, if you get the best talent, then it's a lot easier. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's almost like these super teams, the NBA. If everybody shows up, of course, they're going to dominate. I, I think that's a good point. But like, I mean, there's been other, well, there's been other programs that, like Bowerman's been pretty darn successful too. So like, yeah, it's true. Um, but Bowerman's had some failures and successes and there's, you know, uh, Clayton Murphy. I didn't, I don't think ran as well under, under Salazar is, but look at Centrowitz leaves and he hasn't done much with Bowerman compared to where he was with Salazar. So like, I mean, there's, these are fights that these are in the tent fights, track and field fights, but I, I find this fascinating. And I, I think the guy, he, he's doing it for the right reasons. Like he wants, he wants the athlete. I felt like he wanted the best for the athletes to tell you the truth. Like that's the feeling I got from the people I talked to was that he really gave a crap about how they ran. Like he did. He, and I, I thought even with Mary Kane, like he basically, it was interesting reading his report. He goes, I just, I'm sorry. I couldn't have made her faster and been a better role model to her like he that's a, one of his last statements he says about it and it's like oh that's interesting like i don't feel like deep down i think when he did things it was like because he he literally is obsessed with with doing the best for the person and maybe that line is where some people can't see where like oh sh- oh shit i pushed it too far here <laughs> you know like um i don't know like, we've all seen it i've seen other coaches not with the same talent level, do the same with other athletes over the years. I, you know, and it's, you know, you sometimes go, what, what happened to that athlete? Well, the coach pushed him too far or, you know, and, and I don't think this is just a Salazar thing. I think it's a whole coaching thing. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, people like Nick Willis and Mary Kane who are starting these sort of clubs, this, these ideas of let's stop worrying about winning at all costs and doing a different type program. Maybe that'll take off. Um, I have, I, I don't think so though. I think people like to see people win. And that's the problem we have with this whole thing is that the things that make us win push the envelope. And while we might be uncomfortable with it, we still want to see the winners. We want to see the fast times and maybe you can't have one with the other. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the $64,000 question, but I guess people would say, well, there's other coaches who haven't been, you know, alleged of abuse. The, mo- the most problematic one for me is obviously Mary Kane. She was kind of a kid when she got into this and she's, you know, alleging sort of, I think the word abuse, it, it can stretch such a realm of meanings, but 
for her, it's like she has sort of the less agency. People say, oh, her parents should have known, whatever, but they didn't or she didn't. That's the one I think we all wish we could re- redo. You know, even the Kara Gouchers, the Begley, sure, there's a huge power imbalance, the Nike contract, there's some really bad stuff. But Kara, you can see, is conflicted because she joins this thing. She wants to win essentially, you know, maybe not at all costs, but, and that's what Alberta was trying to do for her. And if, if a coach, can you get someone to the top without saying, Hey, you're a fat piece of blank, you know, like you need to lose weight. I think you can, there's probably ways to do that, you know, with a better culture, you know, like Bobby Knight, the famous basketball coach, you don't need to throw chairs. Like people are like, Oh my God, this guy was crazy. Like we can evolve a bit, I think, but I don't know. I, I, I personally, I don't think I'd have a problem with him if he came back coaching two years from now. Yeah. And I think he, he'd probably, whoever, I don't know if it was Robert, but yeah, like maybe he needs to be trained. Like, I think the problem was with the female side of things. Like, I think that sort of, I've seen this, my wife's the coach at university of Toronto. She's been a track coach there for 20 years. Um, and she's seen it. There is a culture, male coaching culture, male coaching culture and a female coaching culture is different. Um, and sometimes those cultures, I think it, it really was pretty bad. Like I can, I can tell you in the 90, in the eighties and nineties, that was like, that was some hardcore coaches. Like I, I, and the way they talked to us was like, they just say, Oh, do a hard, you know, make sure it's a, a hard practice, you know, like just go at it. Like it was always like very competitive females. You can't coach females the same way necessarily. Um, my wife's always like, drilling this into my head like they have a different you have to speak to them differently you have to treat them differently there's different they don't respond in that sort of like not all of them it's not, and i don't want to stereotype because some do but there's there's two sides to that and um you got to be careful how you deal with that and i think salazar probably needed a female coach on hand who could deal with that and he had darren treasure and he had steve magnus and he had all these guys who are his sounding boards. And so they're not going to be, they're probably not listening to what they should have been listening. And particularly with Mary, that was terrible. Right. And it's, you know, all came out in the wash after, but it's, it's, it's really sad that that happened to her and I feel bad for that. But um, yeah, like maybe that's if, if Nike or if, if Salazar gets back into it, like he needs that balance. Maybe he just needs a counterbalance. Well, it's interesting because you talked about Klosterhoff and going to him after all of these allegations. What's equally is probably even more crazy is, remember, Mary herself was going to go back. She had privately emailed Salazar, you know, about rejoining the team. Only four months before, just before four months before the banning, actually. Right. This is like, what, 2019. Then the ban comes out. and I think it's, again, it's like public perception. Finally, now it's like, oh, wait, this is all wrong. And I, I don't. I think your film did a good job of saying no. It's not this black and white. It's not this clear cut. Um, and you know, in this in modern society, it's like you're either evil or you're good. In reality, most of the time, we're somewhere in between. Did he do a lot of things wrong? Yeah, but he, you know, there were people that were, you know, even Mary Kane herself up until. I mean, maybe she shouldn't have been. Maybe she was an abuse victim. Um, probably like a lot of these gymnasts. I mean, it's pretty sick. Like, just some of the stuff we, we gotten carried away about. You know when it all comes. That's why I love the film. It's because you talked about this is Nike's ethos. You know, they ran ads in 96. Second place is the first loser. I mean, this was all over Atlanta. So 
this was a this is what they had built their brand on. This was the the company was so crazy stuff. Amazing film. I, I need to get you a new shirt though. Before you know, you've got the one fifty nine forty shirt, but I think I should I should I was sold out of the one fifty nine forty asterisk shirts. But you see both sides, so I think I sh- I think you need a black shirt that shows you that the time is deserves an asterisk. You can wear one on one day, <laughs> one on another day. It sure does need an asterisk. I mean, geez. They didn't dope. They didn't do dope testing. They like <laughs> all those things. Like I love the event, but it still needs an asterisk. So, um, but uh, yeah, like thanks, thanks for watching it, and I hope people watch the film. Like, um, and in Canada again, it's going to be on CBC, which is the national broadcaster. Um, I've had to annotate a script for them. They've been on my case, make sure every fact is cleared. And so yeah, so we're. We're all good uh, on that end. And then uh, that's on the 17th and then uh, it's on Peacock. It'll be on Peacock for a long time. And if, and I, I mentioned it earlier, but it's on Amazon and Australia and New Zealand and it's on uh, Sky UK. So uh, I think that's, I don't know where all your listeners come from, but I was just trying to cover the bases there, but uh, you know, so it's, it's available and I hope people, uh, you know, pipe, pipe in, they can, they can give me a hard time or, enjoy it. So I'm getting both sides. So I, again, a lot of the arguments you guys are making, um, I'm hearing that too. So, you know, particularly, uh, the Mary Kane part is the thing that seems to be igniting everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's an important, uh, it's important thing. And I hope somebody does a film on safe sport and does something on about that story because it's probably not my, the kind of film I'll do, but, uh, um, I think somebody should do that film. I think it's important, you know, and uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like the safe sport puts the list of the coaches under allegation and it doesn't later say that if they've been cleared or not, it just puts the, this person's been accused. They put the accusations on there and they don't come in and say the guy's been cleared or not. It's crazy to me that that's the case, but uh, these are the kind of things like I think we should be discussing these things openly and hopefully it'll change for the better. And I like I, you know, I hope uh, I hope the film at least makes people think about the role elite sports has too, because like that's what I really I, I, I love elite sports. and I don't want people to turn and say, oh, well, you know, I hope we just run without watches and don't care about times in the future. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not one of those guys. I, I believe that sport is about competing at the highest end. And I love the fact that people like just watching the Olympics. is just like, it was just like listening to you guys after just going, going, uh, talking about the 1500 final and just like, oh, it was just so incredible to watch those guys right at the cutting edge of like, of what they can do, uh, their physical bodies and, and how coaching and all that comes in. And that's what I wanted to do in the sport. And I want to, I think it should be celebrated and not turn we shouldn't turn our back on it, but as Gladwell says at the end of the film, it's kind of screwed up at the same time. The thing we love is like we're pushing people to run 150 miles a week. It's crazy. Like, but that 150s is, you know, what turns us in what, what gives us those performances. And if we don't have one, we can't have the other. So. Well, Paul, it's very entertaining. The film, if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. Yeah, the Mary Kane story, someone can do a documentary on that. I mean, that's what the New York Times sort of did. But it, it, that angle in itself 
wouldn't be as entertaining because as a sports film, you see Alberto, you see Nike careers, you have the highlights. Like I got pumped up about running and maybe some people will be horrified about that, but I was sort of inspired. I got kind of goosebumps. Like you see people winning races and stuff and like you see the good side of the sport. And then we're also reminded of the bad side. And, uh, you know, I guess the question of a sport is like, how can we have the good without the bad? And I, I think that's life. They don't go away. We can minimize the bad, try to catch the cheats, try to keep, keep the people out. But like the nature of human beings, <laughs> money, sport, greed, fame, whatever it is, people will push the boundaries and somewhat outright cheat to get there. And the question is what happened here? And the biggest and the biggest running brand in the world by far, right? Like who's who we need to have in the sport. If Nike's not there, who is? Like we need it. Um, Nike's done a lot for the sport, so that's what the film was trying to trying to deal grapple with. That if we don't have Nike, what do we got? But at the same time, are they, did they push too far? You know, like I think those are good discussions. Am I allowed to ask this as a final parting question? Because I've I've done this to myself. I guess we can always delete if the answer is no, but um, I think it boils down to this deep down. Do you think ultimately at night at one point, Alberto Salazar rubs some testosterone into Galen Rupp? I say yes. Uh, did he rub it on, on Rupp? Yeah. Sorry. I did, can you repeat the question? I didn't hear it clearly. Do you think deep? To me, it ultimately boils down to, I mean, they never popped them an EPO or anything like that. So I don't think they were doing widespread hardcore drugs. It's possible somebody could be doing it on the side or secretly or or whatever. But to me, it, a lot of it boils down to the massage and the testosterone, which wasn't really a big point of your film. But I, I, I've had this question to myself. Someone says, do, we think, do you think Alberto Salazar gave Galen Rupp a massage with that testosterone cream that he had in his bag? I say yes. What would you say to that question? I have no proof to confirm that that happened. I mean, that's been just people have mentioned that and there's been discussion about that, but I, there's no proof to it. I, I, I plead the fifth on that one. I'm not, uh, and I don't have proof either. And I don't know that it happened. And that's actually why I've always defended Alberto from the band because I think let's say he just, I mean, he did naturally, he had this testosterone cream for whatever medical reason he had it, you know, and he's heard about a sabotage of, of a Nike sprinter. He's clearly the type of person that would be worried about sabotage. And we just had a study come out saying that you can be sabotaged. So it makes sense that he would run this experiment on his son. A lot of people are like, Oh no, that's ridiculous. I'm like, no, that to me actually seems like something very much in Alberta house Salazar's wheelhouse, but then could he also take it too far? Yeah, so we'll never know. Anyways, great film. The ambiguity is good for us. People need to be reminded nothing's perfect. No film is perfect, but this is pretty darn close. So congratulations. Big success. And I hope everybody watches it. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's been a, been a pleasure. I've always wanted to be on Let's Run because, you know, this has been a big dream of mine. <laughs> you got to be properly hydrated. You got to try Drink Element. Go to drinklmnt.com for a free sample pack. Six different flavors sent your way. You pay $5 shipping. I will refund your money if you don't like this stuff. This is how much I like it. It's electrolytes without the junk. It's great stuff. No carbohydrates, no dodgy ingredients, and you're completely in charge. Comes in these little packets you can just pop in your water. So you're totally in control. And no mess, no gunk. It's great. 
Try it out today. DrinkLMNT.com slash Let's Run. Link in the show notes. And if you're thinking of joining the Supporters Club, you need to do it this week because we'll be recapping Diamond League Final in a Supporters Club only podcast. And also 100% of the proceeds go to Jonathan Galt this week. Nothing for Rojo, nothing for Guijo. Sign up today. Let's run.com slash subscribe.